you know, on this journey of sobriety, I need to make things right from the wreckage of my past, and I need to clean some things up. This is really hard for me to do, but I need to tell you that in 1979, while y'all were out of town, I went into your closet, and I stole a gold ring, and I've got money in my pocket. If you'll just tell me what you think is fair, I'd like to make a financial amends for that, and I just want to make it right. And I mean, just tears. I just, I'm an emotional guy to begin with, and I just, just the tears have been flowing. And his mom was sitting there so elegantly, and she looks at me, and she's holding my buddy's dad's hand, and she said the most beautiful thing, Mike, the fact that you have carried this around for as long as you have, and you've come here to tell us about it is enough, and we love you. I could not believe the grace that was shown to me. So about five months later, she passed away from cancer. So I went to the services, and being close with the family, I went back to the family's house. My buddy's dad hollered at me. He goes, Mike, come here. And so I walked back into the bedroom with him, and he opened a dresser, and he held out. He held out a set of sobriety coins that went to year 38, and they were her dad's. And I never knew, and my buddy never told me his mom had a dad that was in the program. My buddy's dad said, would you like these? And I said, yes. And they're in my closet at home. The thing about our program, at least what I have found, there is more grace in this world if you just address it honestly and you give everybody the same value. Everybody's just as important as everybody else, and it does not matter. Everybody is a beautiful human being. I have had more beautiful moments in the last 1,444 days of my life than I had in the first 54 years. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 27. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guests and provide you with a front-row seat to their recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to. Hi, my name is Mike McCoy. I'm an alcoholic addict. My sobriety date is April 8th of 2018. That's fantastic. How long is that? How many years is that? 3.94, but who's counting? <laughs> Sounds like your app. <laughs> Sounds like your app is counting. Right. 
Um, this is the first time I've done this. How about we give out your um, contact information at the beginning of the podcast, which will be new behavior for us, and then again at the end. So do you have sure. any contact information you'd like to give out? Sure, that would be great. Anybody's always welcome to reach out to me if there's anything I can do. Uh, it's Mike McCoy, Mike at cheftotheshelters.org. Cell number is 602-390-3479. And the website is www.cheftotheshelters.org. And we'll give that again at the end of the uh, podcast, and you'll find out more about what his uh, project is um, at the end. So I want to start off by asking you to tell us about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where you were born? Well, the way I tell it now is the truth, but I didn't Mm -hmm. used to, which is always interesting um, for me when I get to speak. Um, I used to always say, you know, I'm from Dallas. I went to Nathan Adams, went to W.T. White. because I always needed to be, you know, it was the ego and the pride. I needed to be the kid from Dallas, from the big city. But in reality, I was born in Hugoton, Kansas, which is a real small town out west, southwest by uh, Dodge City, Ulysses. Then we moved to Wichita when I was, I think, about two. And then we moved to Dallas when I was five. Do you remember Kansas at all? I mean, you were four or five years old. Is that early enough to remember or not really? You know, it's it, it, this is the really weird thing. So I I only remember... One thing, and I remember, well, I remember my address, uh, and I guess that's, you know, back back in the 60s, in case you got lost, you needed to know your address. But I remember one time I got grounded, and and I, I was told I couldn't go across the street to my friend's house, and I remember being out front in my yard with a spoon, and I was, like, digging a hole in the grass, and my dad came out and asked me what I was doing. I said, well, you said I couldn't go across the street. I'm going to go under it. (laughs) (laughs) nice Mm -hmm. the same thing happened to me when i was a little kid i was digging a hole in my backyard and my dad came out he goes what are you doing i go bro i'm digging to china (laughs) he goes what i go i'm digging to china i'm going all the way down (laughs) and uh, he kind of was like all right well just be inside we're doing dinner about 15 minutes (laughs) i was like i was like i better start digging faster i guess um, so what did your family look like when you were born? Do you brothers and sisters, mom and dad, what did the lineage look like? Yeah, I have one sister. She's older. Mm-hmm. Um, mom and dad, you know, my childhood up to about 77, 78 was absolutely wonderful. I don't have any, you know, bad things. I, I was always a restless kid, um, overactive always busy. You know, I'd get in trouble in school, but it wasn't for like anything bad. It was just, I'm always talking or I'm always fidgeting or, you know, whatever that might be. But I do remember, you know, in 78, I found out from my next door neighbor that my parents were getting a divorce. And that really sticks in my head because at that time, divorce was not prevalent, uh, at least in, in my neighborhood in Dallas, North Dallas. Then I remember, you know, things got really difficult, really ugly. And that was when I just literally said, y'all are going to do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. And that's where I went from a very straight-laced, short-headed, short-haired kid to, you know, a year later, the hair's down, you know, below my neck. And I'm wearing flannel t-shirts and I'm hanging out with other people. And so how old were you when you found out from the neighbor your parents were getting divorced? 
I was, I think I was 16. I might've been Ooh. at the tail end of 15, but I think I was 16. Yeah, man. Divorce is hard no matter what age you are. I don't care if you're 34 years old and your parents are getting a divorce. Or in my case, I was 23 and my parents told me they were getting a divorce and it was a very, very difficult on me. Um, right. I don't know if it was a good thing I was drinking then or a bad thing I was drinking then, but I know that I used alcohol and in my case, street drugs, illegal street drugs to cope with that emotional pain. Cause I just didn't know how to deal with it. And I was super sad that my mom and dad were getting to a place where they hated each other's guts and they were okay with showing me that. And I was not raised with that. I was raised with, that's my mom. That's my dad. That's my sister. We all love each other. Here we go. And then it devolved into a, uh, I won't go into depth, but you can just imagine a, an acrimonious divorce. It was not a happy deal. And, um, it just made me super sad. And so uh, that's when I got into, um, I don't know, man. I think my alcohol and drug addiction took a notch up. I think I stepped on the accelerator of the gas pedal a little bit with my drug and alcohol usage when that happened at 23 years old. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, so what were your thoughts on spirituality as a young person growing up? Were you guys going to church? Were you not going to church? What were you doing? It was Schreiber Methodist Church. It was right across the street from W.T. White. We went every week. That's where my Boy Scout troop was. I'm an Eagle Scout. Really? Yeah. Eagle Scout, Order of the that. Arrow. You know. Tell me about that. I don't, I don't have a deep pool of knowledge. I know a couple of Eagle Scouts, but I don't know much about that. Tell me a little bit about that. And you know, do, do you like it? Is it cool? Is it, it, it is really it, is. You know, it was really cool. Until I got to that period that the divorce was, you know, had started. Because then all of a sudden, I'm, you know, at that point, I'm starting to drink. I'm starting to smoke weed. I don't want to go to the Boy Scout meeting with my green socks. Like, my dad did not get his Eagle Scout. And I remember he had many, many conversations with me of how much I would appreciate that later on in life and how much it would mean to him, you know, if I followed through on that. And at the time, when I got my Eagle Scout, I was one of the youngest Eagle Scouts in the country. Now they've eclipsed that by now, but today I'm really happy I have it because it's something I followed through on. And there's a lot of things in my life that I didn't complete. It taught me a lot. You know, I, I like to say I've got some really good MacGyver skills. <laughs> oh, and I learned a lot of them in Boy Scouts. I mean, you gotta, you gotta order the arrow. I mean, we had to go out by ourselves you know, for a 24 to 48 hour period and survive. And you couldn't talk. So you just had to figure it out. So I have really great memories, you know, of, but as soon as I got that Eagle Scout, I was gone. So I want to talk to you about that Methodist church upbringing that you went to across the street from WT White High School. Did you dig it? Did you not dig it? Was it uptight? I mean, what were they doing there? Were you digging it? It was interesting for me, looking back, I, I, I'm going to say it was more social okay than anything i i think i was too young to comprehend i remember i really enjoyed communion because i always got extra bread you know i love eating bread i stole money out of the offering plate i was one of the kids uh that took the offering plates from the church or from the congregation pit sanctuary and back into the uh office and i took money out of uh out of that and it was interesting when uh when my first sponsor when we 
got into the amends part, I was kind of like, ah, I got you on this one. So they tore down my church. It doesn't exist anymore. And I'm thinking I'm Mr. Wise Guy, right? And, and my first sponsor goes, no, we're going to take care of that. You're going to take an offering to another church, and you're going to hand it to them, and we're going to clean that up. And I'm like, oh, okay. I had that foundation. And I'll tell you what I think is the most important for me. I can still remember in the sanctuary where every family sat. It's like everybody always sat in the same places. And all the people, and I'm still in touch with some of uh, the parents from the church that I grew up with. Because back in those days, you know, everybody's parent was your parent. Like, you didn't get away with anything. And, uh, you know, my parents are deceased. But I think when it came to that moment of clarity for me and then trying to accept a power greater than myself. Those were the building blocks. The building blocks were there, but I had been away from the church. You know, when I graduated high school and went off to college, that was that was it. I stopped, you know, I left, and I became a guy that just thought it was all me doing everything. I really never even gave it a second thought. When did you first become aware of alcohol, and what were your initial thoughts about it? I remember, like, I have this memory in my head that I had a bottle of Boone's Farm Tickle Pink. So good. It had to have been 78. Mm -hmm. And I remember I went to a neighbor's house because I was sweet on the daughter there Mm -hmm. and uh, went to her window, knocked on the window, and we polished off a bottle of Boone's Farm Tickle Pink. Um... Between two people through a window. You must have been wasted. <laughs> Seriously, I used I mean, to drink I, that. I, uh, from that moment, I, I was off to the races. They used to have something. I don't even know if they how, They probably don't have this anymore. I, when I was a very young teenager, I used to drink um, Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. They changed. It, Tickle Pink. Is that the but, name of that it? Had to go to Strawberry Hill for reasons that are probably on a... Marketing a, purposes. <laughs> God, that Strawberry Hill Boone's Farm, uh-huh. man. That was it. So fun. I mean, golly. Mickey's I, Big Mouth. Uh, those oh, were God. Right, right, right. Yeah, we've talked about Mickey's Big Mouth on this podcast before um, when I think about it. And it's gross. To me, it's gross. It's, uh, it's a malt liquor. It tasted skunky to me. It had the big mouth. It was like the green glass. I mean, it was okay. It got you wasted quick. It, right. was, it was a good financial decision. It was cheap. What about your family? Let's survey your family real quick. Was there... Any kind of alcohol or drug abuse going on in your family that you witnessed, or is that something that you just kind of discovered on your own later? My parents, you know, the, uh, all the parents that were friends, and they were all, like, all the Schreiber parents hung out together back in the 70s. And, you know, one one Friday we'd be over at, you know, one house, another one it would be at our house, another one it would be down the street, you know, at another house. And the kids were always invited to come, and I remember the parents drinking, but... I don't remember any alcoholism. There's definitely zero uh, drugs. Um, that was that was for sure. And it just doesn't seem to me like either parent was an alcoholic. Yeah, me either. My parents weren't alcoholics. I didn't really see it that much, maybe on TV here and there. But that's where I kind of formulated my uh, opinion of alcoholics were like homeless and living under a bridge and they wore trench coats. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, maybe I just you know, concocted my vision of what alcoholic was, which was erroneous through the media that was being served to me in the seventies and then rolling into the eighties. 
And then lo and behold, I found out I was an alcoholic and I didn't own a trench coat and I didn't, wasn't homeless and I didn't have a gray beard at the time I do now, but back then I did not. I was a very young man. So let's talk about what alcohol did for you when you took your first few drinks. Was it like a magical elixir? Did you like it? Did you not like it? Tell me about those first few drinks. What were you thinking? I loved it. <laughs> That's why you're on this podcast. <laughs> That's why you're on this podcast. Right. Uh, you know, it was, I, I also remember the, the very first time. Okay, so I, so I drank that strawberry or pink, tickle pink, strawberry hill, whatever it went to. Then, uh, then drank some beer. And then I went, there used to be this place, place, you know, I mean, we went to North Haven Park and Walker Park and Rosser Park. I mean, these are all places that we hung out in the 70s. And I remember going to Walker Park one night and somebody was passing around a bong. Now, my hair was just starting to grow then. I didn't know anything about anything. Dude hands me this bong and I'm looking at it and I don't understand it. They show me and I'm like, this is exactly how my brain worked. I drank alcohol, nothing happened. Let's go. Then I got high, enjoyed it. No repercussions, right? Then it was, okay, let me just go. And, you know, the, the stuff at home had pushed me out of a family environment. I'm Now I'm doing, my dad's not living in the house. My You know, my mom and sister are, and I'm not talking to them, and I'm becoming a hippie. I mean, I was full on becoming a hippie, and, and next thing you know, I mean, I wasn't afraid to try anything, and I did try darn near everything. PCB, LSD-25, chocolate mescaline, quaaludes. I mean, I could go on. How did you secure alcohol as a minor? It sounds like it was pretty easy. It was real easy at the beginning. And then it's, it's a funny story. So I got a card in the mail. So I turned 16, right? And then I was 17. The drinking age was 18 back in those days. So I get this card in the mail and it said they messed up on my driver's license. And they did. It said in, well, I don't want to get my birthday out here, but they transposed the day. Instead of one date, they flipped those numbers around just on the day, not the year, which wouldn't have made a difference. So what I did is uh, I got really, really high and I went to the motor vehicle department. And I went in and I found the, I looked around and I found the oldest woman I could see. And I went and stood in her line and I was so toasted. I mean, I was Spicoli. When I got up to her, I'm like, no, you just don't understand. Okay. She's like, yeah, your day is wrong. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's not the day it's is the wrong. Year. It's the year. Thank you, bro. Right. Yeah, you're a hustler, dude. That's exactly. Oh, I mean, I was running game. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, what do you mean? You're like, <laughs> she's like, it's the day. You're like, no, bro. It's the year. Right. And she, she bought it. She did. Thank and, you, Jesus. And so all of a sudden, I get this life. I'm a, a year and nine Let me give days. you a round of applause for that, dude. I mean, it, I mean, that probably could have been my one of my early markers of, you know what? Oh, uh, you should have won gangster of the year for that. That, man did you tell your friends and stuff oh gosh yeah like, oh yes. yeah i'm like i'm legit like i was buying everybody's everything so you changed it by like three or four years and she just typed that in and was like we'll send it to you in three weeks honey yeah it was it, i mean and and then all of a sudden i'm legal and then i found i can't remember the name of the street but i i can like vividly remember it was the cheapest place to get a case of Michelob, and it was 8.99 a case 
And we would go there, you know, three days a week after high school. What's the um, name of the street Lombardi? No. Was it down off of Webb's Chapel? Down yes. There? Yeah, down off of Webb's Chapel. It is. I, I'll, I think, I'll think of the name. I think I know where it is. We used to go to Webb's Chapel in Lombardi right down there, and we used to just hook it up. Right. Um, so when did you start drinking on a regular basis? Immediately. Nice. Yeah. Nice. There, I mean, there was no if ands, or buts. You just got on it? I was, and yeah, and, I, and again, I don't know what my thought process was, but I can't say I did this, be, I did B because of A. I can't say that. I can just say I dug it, and let's get it on, and off we go. How did it help you when you were first starting out? What did it do for you? Um, it took away any inhibitions I had. Like, I was this just terrified from 15 to 16. I was just as... I was just afraid. I didn't understand the world. I didn't understand anything. I was smaller than everybody else in high school. I was scrawnier than everybody else in high school. I didn't, you know, I didn't fit in to be a jock. I didn't, and this is how everybody in our high school was. You were either a, a jock, a goat roper, or a freak, okay? And that was basically it um, in socials. But uh, I didn't really fit into anything, but I found that when I started to party, I started sliding in and to an acceptance part of like-minded people in being a hippie. I just enjoyed it. I wasn't afraid anymore. I wasn't afraid of growing up. I wasn't afraid of what I needed to do. I wasn't afraid of, I just wasn't afraid anymore. And I could talk to chicks. Okay. Dude, you're selling, you're telling my story. Exactly. <laughs> you're telling my story. Exactly. Um, did you ever have blackouts? It's, I'm so glad you asked me that. This is the funniest thing ever. I remember uh, probably second year of sobriety. I was I was back here because I got sober in, in Arizona and, and other parts. But I remember hearing people in uh, in meetings. I mean, over and over and over, people would go, wow, I was a blackout drinker. And, oh, I was a blackout drinker. And, oh. and finally, one day, I just piped in. I go, you know what? I just don't like any of you. Okay, and they're looking at me like, you know, it's Preston group. And they're looking at me and they're like, what? What's wrong with you? I go, no, no, no. Here's how it goes. Okay, you blackout drinkers, I have three times the amends you guys do because I remember 1978. I mean, I, I can, one of my, one of the most hilarious amends after I moved back here, you know, cleaning up the records of my past, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm working on eight and nine. And, and I remember driving down, LBJ, it was April of 19. I was just one year uh, sober, and I look over at Josie Lane, and I see that IHOP symbol, and I just go, crap. I turn the wheel, I exit LBJ, I pull into Joe's, pull into IHOP, I go up front, and there's this girl up front, and I said, uh, yeah, um, could I talk to the manager? And she gets this scary look on her face. And I'm like, no, 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 it's nothing bad. Like, this is really, this isn't bad. So this guy comes out. I mean, if he was 20, I'd be amazed. But he's the manager. And I said, um, hey, dude, can we sit over there for a minute? And he looks at me with these big eyes. I go, no, no, nothing's wrong, okay? So we go and sit in this booth. And I sit there and I go, okay, here's what happened. In 1978... Okay, so this is 41 years later. Oh, wow. I go, in 1978, um, three of us uh, 
had dinner here, and we parked my mom's car right up there on LBJ because I was driving it. And we ran out that door and up the hill, and we didn't pay for dinner. And I reached in my pocket, and I slided 20 across the table. And I go, I'm just here to fix this. And so now I'm done. And he's looking at me, and he goes, are you serious? And I go, yeah, and I don't care what you do with the 20. And I got out. Yeah. <laughs> just bailed. Right. That's awesome. That is a really cool story. I appreciate you sharing that. So when did it occur to you that you may have a problem with alcohol, and what did you do about that thought? This is the sad part. All through my active alcoholism and drug addiction, I never saw anything wrong with my behavior. I never saw anything wrong with my consumption. I remember standing at my refrigerator. It's morning, and I remember having the conversation of, you know what? You drink coffee every day, meaning someone else, right? They drink coffee every day. I hate coffee. They can have a cup of coffee. There's nothing wrong with me having a beer. There's, it's liquid. I literally had that conversation with myself and saw nothing wrong with having a beer at 7.20 a.m. You uh, talked yourself into the fact that, oh, it's just liquid. Other people like coffee. I don't like coffee. Let me hit this beer real quick. Right. Did others ever confront you about your drinking or start to ask you questions about your behavior? Were you ever called out by work or the police department or a wife or a girlfriend or a kid? I had to leave a few jobs based on my behavior when I had been drinking now, I'd say a few, maybe three, right? But I, I know to the average human being, you know, one would be a big deal. Uh, but I'm like, oh, you know, it was maybe three. I don't remember anyone ever saying you had a problem, you know, because I don't want to say anything was good um, with the way I acted. But I always took the opinion that I was the entertainer. I was the guy that had to liven up the parties. I was the guy that needed to get, you know, get the ambiance in the room where people were having fun. And, and I know today that that's just wrong. You know, I, I don't need to be that guy. Um, and I, I should, probably shouldn't have been that guy. But that's my disease at the time that was like, no, come on, this is your job. You got to do this. You got to take one for the team. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to you after you left high school? What was your next move? I want to touch on the night before I left high school because it is important now. I didn't think it was at the time. So I, I had always had parties um, at my parents' house after they were going through a divorce. And I'd have three, 400 people at my parents' house and 10 kegs, two bands. And it was announced on Q102 and all the stuff. Well, I was, after the, the last party, my mom came home in the middle of the party and I was politely asked the next day to move out. So then all of a sudden I was a senior in high school with an apartment, which can't be any good. And so we would play quarters at my apartment before we went to school but to that party the night before, uh, the night before I left for the University of Arkansas, um, I had a bunch of people, probably 30, 40, 50 people in my apartment. Uh, we were smoking weed. We were drinking like fish. And there was a knock on the door. And uh, so the music's playing. I mean, the U-Haul is packed up out in the parking lot. Like, it's an empty apartment with music. Somebody's boombox back then. And I opened the door, and it's two of Dallas's finest. 
and uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm high, and I'm drunk, and we start talking, you know, because it's the cops. I'm always super respectful, and they, the one cop said, we're having a problem hearing you. Can you step outside? And so I stepped outside the front door, and they handcuffed me and said public intoxication, which is not real fair, but you know, whatever. But here's where, <laughs> this is definitely a marker for our fellowship, my fellowship. I remember being in the police car and they're driving, this is back in the days of Harwood, you know, the Harwood jail. And uh, I remember I'm listening to the cop on the radio and he's starting to talk about the Salvation Army. And I'm like, I'm handcuffed in the back seat and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. No, you can't take me to the Salvation Army. No, I'm from North Dallas, okay? And my mother cannot come to the Salvation Army. You have to take me to Harwood. And I'm literally arguing with the cop to take me to Harwood. And they took me to the Salvation Army. And my mom had to come pick me up there. And then I left for uh, Arkansas the next day. And Arkansas is where the wheels really start coming off. This is college? Yes. Yes, sir. Um... And this is where the wheels come off for the next 30 years. I got to Arkansas, and uh, I, wasn't, you know, I wasn't a fraternity guy. But then I found after the first semester that if you're not a fraternity guy, you're not going to go out with the cute girls because they're all in sororities. So I pledged. This goes back to something we talked on earlier about the Eagle Scout part because it was something I finished. I remember that that first semester I pledged, um, I knew I wasn't going to make my grades. And I was devastated uh, because I so wanted to be a member of the fraternity. Um, and then they told me, well, here's the deal. You're going to be invited back for next semester. It's called a retread. And I was like, oh, you have that. And I said, okay. You know, and my grades were starting to really, really go in a tailspin. But I remember at the end of that second semester pledging, I knew I wasn't going to make my grades, and I knew I wasn't going to get initiated. I didn't tell one human being, nobody, and I went ahead and went through hell week as if I was making my grades because I just wanted to say I took it all the way. But that's just the beginning of periods of my life where I just did DNF, did not finish, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, they were like, why'd you go through hell week if you knew you didn't make your grades? I said, I don't. I don't think you understand. I just wanted to say I went as far as I could, you know. This was when I really started getting out and about with cocaine. Um, you know, I, I obviously still blazing a trail with alcohol and uh, marijuana. Then I really just something happened, and there were no rules for Mike McCoy anymore. I didn't see anything wrong with what I was doing. And there was so much that was going on. And then, you know, the cocaine became very, very prevalent for the next seven years in college. Yes, the joke is I, I was in college from 81 to 89. So any song that came out in the 80s, I was in college for. And, I, you know, that's the talking heads, Depeche Mode, you know, you 2 all of that. Um, but the drugs and the alcohol... I mean, now I'm off to the races, and I can I see nothing wrong with 
what I'm ingesting. Okay. And then, you know, that, that was also the time of ecstasy came out. It was, it was legal and then it became illegal and it didn't matter. I was going to do it anyway, but I do remember one, one weekend, uh, went to a buddy's lake house. Um, and there was a group of us that were out there and I watched people. I took a bunch of blow with me and I remember I watched people go to sleep three times and I was up and uh, made it to 99 hours. And um, there was like this cheering section now. And I'm making this up in my words, right? There's this cheering section now of he's got to make 100 hours, got to make 100 hours. And uh, I just said, you know, I can't. Like, like this is it. I'm out. I'm done. I got to go to sleep. And uh, somebody put this big line out. And I looked at this person and I said, watch this. And I literally snorted a three-foot line. I looked at everybody, and I said, I'm going to bed. And I walked in the other room, and I passed out. Again, I saw nothing wrong with my disease. I, I couldn't tell I had a disease. I saw nothing wrong with the amount I was starting to take. I remember sending out or calling a couple of friends that were with Hilton Hotels, and pretty soon an opportunity came to go to the Hilton National Sales Office back here in Dallas. So I get back here, and uh, I'm working in the National Sales Office, and... What was your drinking and drugging doing during this whole time? Just hanging the, out in the background? You or? know, the cocaine had gone kind of... It, it was it was in remission, okay? <laughs> my, my cocaine habit was in remission, but the drinking was, was really kicking on. This was right after Mikosina opened, uh, the Mikosina at uh, Preston Force, the very first one. I was there. It's part of my story. I remember in the national sales office, this kid moved, came down, came to work with us uh, from Oregon. Um, and, you know, he's, he's, I'll just say he's green. I mean, he's just green. He didn't, uh, didn't, you know, they pumped their own gas up there. He didn't understand how to pump his gas. And it just, you know, it wasn't going to be good for the kid, right? Um, but I didn't say anything. And all of a sudden, one day, he comes by. We were all in these cubicles. And in, in the office environment, he goes, McCoy, me, you, Mambo Taxi, drink off. And like five heads in the office come out of their cubes. They're like, Dan, you do not want to do this. <laughs> Um, I held the record at Miko Cena for six Mambo Taxis. Um, I was tied in the record books with Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle had his record was six of the margaritas at Miko Cena. At the same time, I held the world title. With Wasn't them. he an alcoholic too? Mm-hmm. Wow, they don't even allow you to do that anymore, right? The no. limits one or two. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of you know so the alcohol part. Um, still rolling really good. And I'm, I could drink like a fish. And I don't know. I have no idea how I don't have any DUIs. I just I just don't. Um, and I'm really grateful I didn't hurt or kill somebody. Because um, I probably should. It probably should have happened with the amount that I was drinking. Um, there was one night... Um, before, I think it was before I was going to go to, uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, uh, Lone Star Park. 
So here's where Lone Star Park comes in. Um, I'm at an MPI meeting, Meeting Professionals International. I'm at an MPI meeting here in Dallas, and a girl comes up, and she goes, hey, I know you're not looking for a job, but I heard of something that just sounds like you. And I was like, oh, really, what's that? She goes, well, they're going to build a racetrack here. And I go, like, gambling? She goes, yeah. And I used to go to Oakland Park all the time in college, you know. And uh, I'm like, tell me more. And so I applied for the job of director of corporate sales and uh, got the gig. And uh, we brought that thing out of the ground. It was a Harlan Crow project. Um, and he had kind of rescued it. That it, it was going under with all the original investors. And then he came in and uh, really rescued the thing. Now, I mean, he brought a team that did it. It wasn't Harlan, you know, per se, but... Um, I learned so much from the guys that I was working with, and it was a fun environment. I mean, it's gambling, it's fast-paced, it's, you know, I mean, I would go to Bob's two nights a week, and I would go to Javier's three nights a week, and we would just sit in there in the bar or in the cigar room, and I would just be collecting people's business cards, because here's, here's my mantra. It does me no good to give out business cards, okay? Because if I give out 100 cards, I'm going to get three calls. Two of them are going to be, I want free something, and one of them is going to be for something else that probably wants a favor for something. But if I collect 100 cards, I've got 100 people I can call. And that really did me well, especially in the environments at Bob's and Javier's because they were already economically qualified for box seats, jockey club memberships, luxury suites, group events, whatever. Um, And how I used to tell the story before I got sober about Lone Star Park was, you know, I did this, I did this, I did this. And the reality is what I really did is I hired people that were better than me. I hired group sales managers that were better than me. I hired other salespeople that were better than me, but I never gave them the credit um, while I was still out there. And I've tried to rectify that since I've gotten sober. I want to make sure um, that I was just a guy that worked on a team with some really, really fabulous people. Um, So while I'm at Lone Star Park, I made friends with uh, the guys from the stars and, uh, there was I, I I got a call one day and it said, "Hey, we gave your name to uh, Disney, um, which a company called Anaheim Sports Inc. But they were you know they were owned by Disney, and at the time they were the only uh, entity that owned an NHL and a Major League Baseball team. They had the Ducks and the Angels." And uh, I said, "Oh, okay. Well, they're looking for a new director of sales." And I said, "Oh, okay. Well." fat i'm you know i'm going back to cali to cali to cali i'm going oh sorry and so i interviewed got on a plane flew out there met mo vaughn i mean it was you know i was back in socal i'm not really a socal guy but i really like the fact that i had different pockets of people that partied different ways everything was going good until a trip to go see a padres game anaheim sports inc um, rented two buses, and we were going to go down as a staff, loaded up two full buses. We go down, you know, drinking, having fun. Everybody's having fun. And when we were when we got on the buses to come back, I was on the second bus, and I remember the VP of HR 
came back to our bus and uh, she said, no more alcohol on the way back to Anaheim. And, you know, everybody's, whoa, you know, whatever. And so the two buses take off and we're going up to five. And I remember going to the front of the bus and I gave the bus driver a 20 spot. And I said, dude, next station. So he pulls over and I went in and I bought two or three cases of beer or whatever it was, got back on the bus. And uh, when I got back to Anaheim, it wasn't, it wasn't complete destruction, but it wasn't good. Okay. I remember, you know, I remember feeling that heat, you know, in my head. And it was about halfway up my head. I kind of played it off. And the, all of a sudden, I get this phone call. And it's from the Stars, my buddy over there. and uh, The Dallas Stars, NHL yes. team. Yeah, okay. NHL Dallas Stars, sorry. He said, we want to bring you back. Uh, Tom Hicks bought the Rangers. And I said, that's going to be difficult. Okay, because hockey bleeds into baseball, baseball bleeds into hockey. You got spring training, preseason. You've got if you have Stanley Cup postseason. Uh, you know, it's just you're always in a budget cycle. You know, a budget cycle for a, for an NHL, Major League Baseball team, whatever. It, it's it's lengthy. Okay, and it's not easy. Well, anyway, um, it was presented to me on the phone. Uh, that I would be offered the position of vice president of sales of the Rangers, Stars, the Rodeo, and we were going to build this thing called the American Airlines Center. Even today, I'm a guy that if the, the more you give me, the higher I'm going to function, but the less you give me, the harder it's going to be for me to achieve anything. Um, and in those days, I would just tear things. I would just burn things down, you know? So I said, okay, well, let's, you know, let's talk about money. And that's probably the third phone call. And it's my buddy, you know, a real good friend. He was going to be my boss. He goes, we're not going to talk money. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're going to, uh, your address is 1000 Ballpark Way. And I said, so big deal. The offices are at the ballpark. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, there's four towers at the ballpark. I'm like, right? He goes, well, only one of them was finished out. And it's a condo. And it was for George W. when he owned the team. And I remember holding the phone in Anaheim, and I sit there for about 10 seconds of silence, and I go, yeah, send the moving truck and the car carrier and a plane ticket, and uh, yeah, that'll be great. So I lived in the tower um, in George W. Bush's suite, a condo, uh, at the ballpark for a little over nine months and it had access to the roof. So of course I had to buy a barbecue grill and put it on the roof and I had parties on the roof. So you can see the alcohols coming back in. Yeah. Okay? I mean, everything in my life always at, at this point now I'm drinking every night. Okay. My day drinking hasn't, you know, totally kicked in yet, but it's coming. I'll tell a story about Yankees, Arizona, the world trade center thing had happened and I was at the ballpark and I remember the morning it happened, because my buddy goes, hey, get in here, you know, into his office, and we're next door to each other, and I walked in and could see the tower, you know, the first tower, and then literally saw the plane hit the second tower, and I remember just leaving and going to drink, like, just didn't understand, couldn't comprehend what it was, so fast forward to October, um, Game three of the World Series. Uh, we got on a plane and we went down. We went down to New York, and 
I remember it was the first sporting event that I'd ever seen a metal detector. And it was spooky, dude. I mean, the the ambiance was, you know, for New York, which I'd been to a lot, it's not loud. It's quiet. It's solemn. We went down to ground zero before the game, you know, in the during the day. And it was probably 45 days later, something like that. Um, and it was still smoldering. I mean, it was very powerful for me to, like, all of a sudden, like, I'm there. And it's, oh, crap, right? But that night, something happened at the game. Um, we got in, and, and we were watching... Marine One and the other Marine, whatever they call it, going in and out, in and out, in and out. They were playing the shell game, you know, so nobody would know which one Bush was in. And I remember I'm in the stadium when the national anthem came on. I've been in sports now for quite a bit, quite quite a long time. And I've heard the national anthem a thousand times. And that night, all of a sudden, just tears came down my face because all of a sudden the national anthem I saw and I still have pictures of first responders, the fire trucks, the buildings, the things I bought down in Soho. And ever since that day, every sporting event I go to, I stop and I just lower my head because now it means something from that experience. Alcohol and drugs warped my head in a way, it's just, it's, it's so hard for me to explain it. You know, I, I, I was not, or I, yeah, I was not the cat that I am today. I am so thankful for God, who's my higher power, and for the four walls of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I couldn't see any of this until other people in the rooms said, you know what, Mike, we're going to take this one day at a time, and you're just going to try and do the next right thing, and we'll see what we can do. And I had great sponsors. I know we're going to talk about that. I want to talk more about that, but let me finish out on the on the sports side. So all these World Series, all these Super Bowls, British Open, Ryder Cup in uh, Ireland, while I was at every event, and I was getting tanked at every event. This wasn't like, you know, patty cake time. I mean, it's game on. Um, went to the Masters eight times with clients. Um, all of these trips, while I'm there, I'm not even thankful I'm there. I know exactly what I'm thinking. What do I get to brag to my friends that I'm doing next? If I was at the Kentucky Derby, I'm thinking about, you know, whatever, you know, um, and it's such a gross part of my life um, that I acknowledge now, and I need to, uh, I need to own it, you know, because I did it, and that's what I thought, and that's what, you know, that's what my behavior's like when I drink and I drug. What was going on on the personal side? Were you married? Did you have kids? How did your drinking affect the marriage or the children or anything? Our president went to Phoenix from Dallas, and I wanted to take a group of us with him, but in order for me to get there, I had to move to Scotland and then move to Arizona. But that's a longer story I don't want to talk about. Um, but over in Scotland, that's where my day drinking started. Um, you know, the first day, 
I went to breakfast and saw people drinking. I was like, that's, you know, scotch with eggs? That's disgusting. Well, the second day, they were my tribe. These are my people, you know. And so for 33 days, I was there before I could go to Arizona, and there's a reason for that. But The Arizona, you were trying to go out to the NHL team, the Arizona Coyotes? Is right. that what they were called? Yeah. Right. There was a little, there was a challenge with taking other employees from here. Yeah. Um, but in my conniving mind, if I left, if I quit and left the country for more than 30 days, I'd be employable at will, and that rule wouldn't hold me back. So I just moved to Scotland. Because mm-hmm. isn't that what everybody does? For 33 days. Right, for 33 days. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I get, to, uh, I get to Phoenix, and I meet somebody, and we wound up getting married. I have two beautiful children. And uh, the fast lane in Scottsdale, I was the lead car. I was doing a lot of cocaine. I was drinking an enormous amount. So I got married. I got married in 2004, February 2004. We had our first child in December, and then we had my, my that's my daughter. And then we had my son uh, in 2006, um, and then just Katie barred the door. 2004, the lockout comes. I go to work for uh, a title company there. They offered me the uh, opportunity to come on as vice president of business development. I didn't know anything about real estate, but I was really good networking. Really landed some some deals. When it was in my first year, I landed a $432 million deal, and I got paid on a $432 million deal. Congratulations. No. <laughs> Not good. No. <laughs> Not good. You don't pay an alcoholic addict on a four hundred thirty-two million. Yeah. Um, did your wife? Let me ask you a question about your wife. Uh, did she? Did she? Were you trying to hide your cocaine and alcohol use before y'all got married? She kind of saw no, it. No, she never did. She never saw it. She wasn't no. super aware what what she, you. Were. And she, at least she never brought it up. Um, okay. Even to this day. So from two thousand seven to two thousand ten, I had country club membership at Arizona Country Club. I started buying my Porsches. We built a house in D.C. Ranch. I mean, it was all this ego stuff, and it didn't matter. Like, I bought one Porsche. Well, I needed to have the next new one, so I got the brand-new 2005 Carrera. This is, like, this is how gross Mm -hmm. I was. Were you aware on any level that you were being gross or that you might have a problem? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. You were just trapped in your own ego at that point? I was so self-absorbed. It was, I mean, it really is gross. Were you happy every day or were you miserable every day? Because it sounds like you're doing some things. I was happy for moments there. But it was always, it's just like I said about the sporting events. What's next? Was it on your radar screen that you might be an alcoholic or a drug addict? Really, dude? I love it. I love it. And so here's where, here's where the wheels and the flaps and the everything wings come off. So 2010, I had back surgery. I needed to have my L4 and L5 fused. When I was going into the hospital, they said, you'll get a pain doctor. You don't tell an addict, alcoholic, drug addict like me, I'm going to get a pain doctor. Nothing good is going to come from that. And it, uh, and it didn't, you know. Uh, I found how to work the doctors. Um, so from 2010 to 2012, the napalm was starting to come out um, from me. I was starting to burn. I was burning relationships down. I was burning my 
uh, just burning everything down. Um, Did you get hooked on prescription drugs at that oh yeah. point? Oh, yeah. Were um, you aware that you were hooked on prescription drugs? No. You know, and, and my ex-wife, she, one night she put all the pill bottles on the dresser, and there was a note. We never had a conversation oh, about it, no. but there was a note. What does the note say? All of them, and she had, like, highlighted, do not you do not take with alcohol on, oh, you know, eight. She circled that on yeah, all. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're drinking and taking them like M&Ms. Right. And I remember one point I woke up, and I was on the couch in our, we had this, it was a gorgeous home, and I'd been intubated. I had the EMTs were over me, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, what? And I guess it's that I had taken so much over a period of time that they saved my life. Um, what is, well, tell me the rest of that story. What she said, she came in and shook you and talked to you. You wouldn't wake up? Or I you don't th- know. You don't know. Did you throw up? Did you? No. Really? Golly. So did you go to the hospital or did they just wake oh, you up and say yeah. you're, yeah. Oh we're, oh, we're just getting started now. Oh, no. I hope, do you have a seatbelt over there? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm <laughs> okay. ready. They take me to the hospital. And of course, while I'm in the hospital, I'm, I'm calling my boys. I'm calling my posse. Hey, y'all got to bring, you know, I need three cans of skull from you. I need six, you know, airplane bottles of crown from you. I need blank, 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 blank. So people are coming to the hospital, dropping stuff off. I just sweep all of that under the carpet because I'm really good manipulating. We get to 2012. 2012, I was just a zombie. I was a walking zombie. Burnt down my marriage. We got divorced. Uh, I got a condo. 2013, 14, and 15, I didn't open the blinds of my condo. I didn't leave unless it was to go to the store for alcohol or to pick something else up. Um, what happened to your job? You had lost it at this point? or I quit? was riding on my residuals. I wasn't even going in anymore. I wasn't even going through the motions. Okay. August of 15, I decided it's time for me to go. Go where? Die. Okay. And so I ate 130 Percocet. And this is important for me to... To share now, I did not think in August of 15, I had anything to offer anyone or this world. I didn't, ha- I didn't think there would be one point of Mike McCoy being alive. Um, and, we'll, and we'll touch on what we get to do today. That I was so wrong, but I've still got a lot of pain that's got to come. So, August of 15, I tried to die. Had you contemplated suicide before? Was that something that had been rattling in your head before for years? Or was that it, just come on quickly? Or Not was- for years. It definitely... I, I, I am of the opinion that the amount of drugs that I was taking, um, there was some kind of psychosis that was taking place in my head. I know... That it was never enough. Here's the really sick part. I wasn't an addict. You know why? Mm-mm. Because everything I was taking was prescription. Oh, my God. You gerrymandered that in your head? I wasn't an addict on cocaine. You know why? <laughs> no, I cannot wait to hear this one. Okay, because I was freebasing. I wasn't smoking crack. You were tripping. <laughs> okay, I was a white-collar yeah. person. Yeah. Okay? This is... My disease that I could not see anything wrong. So August of 15, 
I tried to check out. But at this point, I'm up to 300 Percocet a month, Adderall to get up, Ambien to go to bed, bottle of scotch a day, probably Coke every other day, um, under a blanket for three years. This was hell. This was the absolute worst time of my life, and I could not see a solution. I could not see a solution that I get to live today. That's scary. That's scary talk right there. I want to give the uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline phone number out. It's 1-800-273-8255, and I encourage people to use that if they're triggered at any point or they have considered things like that in the past or just might in the future. It's 1-800-273-8255. So during that five or during that three years that you were tripping up up in that uh, condo, I mean, you had to have known you were in full-blown crisis mode. You didn't know? What did you think? I look back. I was just the walking dead. I had so much. I had so much in my body uh-huh, yeah. that it couldn't have been. I'll tell you, the, and I'm not going to use specific names, but I'll tell you there's challenges. Uh, there were challenges. Hopefully they're fixed now. So I was going to a specific pain doctor. And, you know, occasionally I'd get UA tested, right? And I knew this doctor, lived in the same neighborhood. Um, Kids played together. And so I got UA tested on whatever month it was. And so the next month, I'm like, sweet, that UA tested me last month. I'm breezing in. I did some blow the night before, and I go in, and she walks in with a cup, and I'm like, like I did it last month. I'm like, this is not going to, this is the Hyatt. Mm-hmm. Okay, back in Lake Tahoe. This is not going to turn out good. And I knew it. Yeah. So this doctor that I knew, he personally comes in. And I, I'm getting an enormous amount of prescription drugs, you know, for my addiction at this point. And he said, hey, Mike, you tested positive for cocaine. And I said, yeah, I know. And I said, so uh, what should I do? And he gave me the name of a doctor down the street. And he said, go in there. And he'll take care of you, and you'll be his patient now. That's a problem, okay? And Now, I know at the end of the day, and at the beginning of the day, and in the middle of the day, Mike McCoy took the drugs. Mike McCoy worked to get the drugs, took the drugs, but you somehow CVS, Walgreens, health department, government, physicians association – Somebody has had to have been able to see the amount of drugs I was getting from all these different places. But I'm not putting any blame on anybody other than myself. And I know that today. You know, I was a master manipulator. But there needs to be safeguards in place. Somehow, somebody has to have the keys to the castle. And they have to be able to see if people are getting prescribed from five different places. I think that's coming on now. I mean, you've been sober for four years almost. So basically I think that is coming on now. Cause I think it's a lot harder to do stuff at Walmart or CVS. And my wife has had tried to get pain prescriptions filled for surgeries and stuff. And the pharmacists are asking her when she hands them the script, what is this for? Why do you need this? Right. My, my wife's like, what? So I think it's getting much tighter on the regular uh, regulation side, regulatory side. So talk to me more about that August 15th suicide attempt. Let's touch on that quickly and then yep. spring forward. So what happened after the suicide attempt? And then kind of roll us into you getting sober and what happened? Well, I didn't die. Thank you very much. 
Glad you're here. I know. I'm sorry. I hope, hope the listeners at home no. understand. I'm like yeah. the happiest sober guy you're ever going to beat in your life, maybe. Um, so uh, from August to December, I'm, I'm still like I went right back to, OK, I'm taking my pill. I didn't die. I'm going to take my pill. I'm going to drink. And so December, my CEO calls me um, and we're still friends today. And he just laid it out. He goes, Mike, either you got to show up at work or you got to resign. And I quit. How messed up is my brain to give up, you know, a job? Like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go to work this job anymore. I'm just going to quit. What are you going to do? I don't know. I get to February, and this is where it starts. You know, I know today that God has been in my life every single day of my life. I just was unaware of it. February 16th of 2016, I opened my eyes that morning. I'm still taking all the pills and doing the blow and drinking. But all, I, I, not that day. I get up that morning and I go in and I pick up the phone and I call all three doctors. And I tell them what I've been doing. And I said, don't ever write me a prescription again. Okay. Where did I, that come from? Where did that thought come from? Where did that idea come from? Was that something you had been thinking about? At at the time, I had no idea I was doing it. And today, thanks to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, um, I know exactly what that was. That was, uh, that was God grabbing a hold of me because he's getting ready to do a whole bunch of stuff in my life. Um, that's beyond my comprehension still, and I li- I'm living that story. Um, so I went three weeks cold turkey off of the Percocet, the Adderall, the Ambien, the Coke. I mean, I was still drinking, but I remember very vividly sweating through three outfits a night for three weeks. Um, it was horrible. I mean, the, the chill, the temperature changes inside of my body, and... And all of a sudden, one day, my phone rang. And we're right at the very beginning of March, it seems, uh, in 18. No, sorry, 16. And uh, it's a guy I hadn't talked to in probably five years. He did the naming rights for Petco Park. Um, And we knew each other from our sports days. And we still talk today, as a matter of fact. I've thanked him. We've had the conversation of how blessed... um, I am to have him as a friend. But he came out of nowhere, and he had he was the CEO of three minor league hockey teams. Um, and one of them was in Wichita. And he had a job opening. Um, and, of course, I turned it down because I was so busy being <laughs> unemployed and about to lose my place. You know, we alcoholic addicts, we are the most busiest people on the planet. Like, no, 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 I don't have time for all this stuff. Right. Um, anyway, I called him back. And I took the gig. So I go to, uh, I go to Wichita. That was probably the end of March of 16. Yeah. And uh, started revamping the sales team inside of an organization. I wasn't really ready to talk to people when I first got there because I had just come off that three-week self-detox. Yeah. And... Uh, which anybody 
should go to a rehab facility or a hospital. This is not recommended um, by any means. Um, and uh, so I remember I turned on the TV. Now, I've been on the West Coast for about 15, 16 years now, right? So sports comes on at 9 or 10 in the morning. So I'm in Wichita, Central Standard Time, and it's 10.55 on a Sunday, and I got a Dos Equis in my left hand, and I got the channel changer in my right, and I'm like, what do you people do before noon? I mean, you know, I've been, you know, sports, let's get my giddy up on at 8 in the morning. I can start drinking because the sports are going to come. Anyway, uh, I remember seeing the channel guide, and it said... First United Methodist Church of Wichita. And, uh, and I remember having another one of those conversations with myself. And I said, well, you grew up in a Methodist church. This is a Methodist church. It couldn't hurt anything. There's nothing else to do. Let's watch. And that was the first day in 30-plus years that, even though it was on TV, I had gone to church. I remember this cat, when it came on, the minister, Kent Rogers, such a great guy, still a friend. He was the pastor, and he was wearing these, he had jeans and a shirt, and I'm sitting there like, yo, dude. Methodist Church has changed in 30-something years. But what he was talking about, he had a guy on his show that was a recovered addict. What are the odds on that? What are the odds after 30-something years of not going to church, after going through the addiction and alcoholism, and after being in that spot in Wichita, Kansas, at 11 a.m. on that day, for Pastor Rogers to have a recovered act. What are the odds? Okay. This is just one of a lot of God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. I mean, he's putting himself in front of me in so many different places, and I'm starting to see it. That's the weird part. So we get to May, and as, to be honest, it's May 22nd of that year of 2016 and I know that because I took a picture of it and it's still on my phone on May 22nd Pastor Rogers email address came down on the screen and I had the Dos Equis, and I paused the TV and I took the picture on my phone and it's the first time I talked to God in almost 40 years and I looked up and I said okay I get it I'll send him an email and I did. Pastor Rogers' secretary reached out to me, and I met him the next week. And it was the first time in a very long time I was one one-thousandth honest with, with someone, with another human being. And I told him just a little bit of my life of lies and deceit. And uh, we became friends. He had... He made it possible for me to continue to watch church on TV. I'm still drinking like a fish. 
And by November of that year, I'm mad at the uh, general manager of our team. Was that the Wichita Thunder? Yep. Shout out to the Wichita Thunder ice hockey team, by the way. <laughs> How do you know that? I know all the hockey oh. teams. So you're mad at the GM and what as a, As a great alcoholic, I decided mm-hmm. it's me or him. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That might just be part of your personality, right. too. You know what I'm saying? So at 2 a.m., I fired off an email to the owner of the team. And I did state it's me or him. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't me. Yeah. Um, he probably looked at that timestamp on it, too. He's like, what? Middle of the night? So I'm gone from the Thunder. And literally within five days, I get a call from a friend in Arizona who's the president of a soccer team that's getting ready to go through a rebranding phase and build a pop-up stadium, Phoenix Rising FC. They were Arizona United at the time. Okay. And I get hired. So as far as anybody in the world knows, McCoy hit the home run again, you know. So I get back to Phoenix. So you don't have anybody in the whole world you're being honest with this no. at this point? Your, no. pa- your parents? Nobody, no. nobody. It's just you rolling, huh? Just rolling. My mom had passed. My mom passed away in 92. Okay. And uh, dad passed away in 09. Um, and so I get back to Phoenix. And now all of a sudden, here comes... Here comes ego. Here comes pride. Here comes selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. You know, here we go. Mm-hmm. Had to get another portion, you know. Mm-hmm. And about six months into it, I got sideways with our chief operating officer. And I was relieved of my job. And, uh, it's a beautiful, happy ending that's coming, I promise. So, I was kind of in the abyss for a little bit. I was doing some consulting with some commercial real estate, just kind of patchwork stuff, nothing nothing legit, you know, like full-time. And uh, then on December 17th of 2017, I have two beautiful kids, 11 and 12. On December 18th of 2017, I had an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 31-year-old who had two children and a, do- and a daughter on the way, two boys and a daughter on the way. Um, he reached out and uh, thought that I was his dad. And we connected the dots, and I said, yes, I knew your mother in the summer of 85. The dates worked perfect. I saw his picture next to mine. I'm like, that's my son. How, how did he find you? He found me on Facebook. Okay, so as an adult child, you had yeah. no idea existed until you received 30, He's 31. So he Facebook messaged you no, or so no, emailed you? He reached out to my sister, and my sister reached out to me. Okay. And the call started with Michael, and that's the same way, you know, that's the same way my mother addressed me at Thanksgiving when she dropped her fork and I was going to fail. Yeah. When I was cut off, Michael, yeah. Michael's not good in my family. <laughs> so not good sister. at all. Probably yours either. I don't yeah, know. right. So I said, yeah, give him my, you know, name and number, or give him my number and my email address, and let me have a conversation with him. And 
So we talked. I don't really remember the next four months. I wasn't sober from December to, you know, the end of March. I don't know how many times we talked. I don't ask him about it. We have a beautiful relationship today. I love him. I love my daughter-in-law. I love my three grandchildren. I'm so fortunate I'm alive. And uh, so at the end of March of 18, I was done again. I was ready to check out. Um, because again, I just, I just didn't feel like I had anything to offer the world, you know, nothing, not, couldn't help anybody, couldn't do anything, was worthless. So were you my, drinking daily at this point? Yeah. 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 Daily in the morning, at night, just in the middle of the day, you know, and this is when I was with the soccer team, what sticks out with me is, um, I would take clients to lunch and then it became... I'm going to take clients to lunch that aren't going to give me crap about drinking. Okay. And then it got to the expert level of, I'm going to just write their names on an expense report and I'm not going to invite them. And I'm going to drink three times as much and just say they drank a little bit more at lunch. I mean, this is that progressive part of my disease that I could never see when I was in it, but I can look, I can look back today and I can just go, what? How could you not have looked at yourself? But that's what my disease does to me. That's what I'm wondering, too. I've asked you several times if you were aware that, you know, how how on fire you were. And you keep saying, no, 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 no. (laughs) But anyways, on 318, you're ready to check out again. Yeah. On 318, I'm ready to check out March of 18. And so, of course, Mike McCoy's Hail Mary to commit suicide was I was going to get baptized first. Because I'm certain if you get baptized and kill yourself, you go to heaven, right? I know. This is my mind, okay? Easter Sunday was April 1st of 2018. And, of course, some of my friends, the joke is only McCoy can get baptized on April Fool's Day. I got baptized at a friend of mine's church. Nothing out of the ordinary happened. And the next Sunday, on April 8th of 2018... When I opened my eyes, it was gone. God had just removed the obsession and compulsion for alcohol. And when I opened my eyes, that's the only thought in my head. And I didn't know about AA. And so I went downstairs and I of my place and I threw everything in the garbage and I went and got on the couch and started watching sports and it was a Sunday like, you know, just okay, this is my new world. The next day, Monday, the ninth, I'm laying on the couch. I can see myself laying on the couch right here. And something inside of me said you need to go to an AA meeting. I didn't know where they were. Nothing. I'm in Tempe at the time, Tempe, Arizona. So I Google it, and uh, I go. I go to a meeting, my very first meeting. You know, the alarms start going off when I see the triangle in the circle. (laughs) Okay? I'm seriously like, this is not a good idea. Like this is this is a cult. This is not a good idea. As you're walking into oh, yeah. the joint, as I'm walking up to the door, I'm like, did the know. circle and triangle, sh- you know, like shoot you off, or it was just the it, symbolism? It, it, or? I, I I think it just. <laughs> I know what it was. Yeah, it's just my brain. 
It's like go in. What I think it here's what I think it was. I think it was your disease realizing that you or it AA or something was about to put a full frontal assault on it, <laughs> which means that you were looking into possibly not indulging your disease anymore. So your disease was like, no, this is not a good idea. Probably. So many people have so many thoughts and feelings walking into their first meeting. My right. my first thoughts and feelings when I walked into my first meeting in 1989 is this is kind of unnecessary. Um, <laughs> you know, I believe a lot of people are overreacting this in my life. Overkill. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people in my life are overreacting. Uh, I, I, I will, I would say maybe I need to go to an NA meeting cause I am a drug addict, but I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I don't need to be going to AA. That was my first time through the program of recovery in 1989. My second approach to Alcoholics Anonymous uh, on my second sobriety date, which is my current sobriety date, October the 10th of the year 2000, as I approached the meeting that night, I was thinking, I can't believe I'm back in AA again. I can't believe I'm about to walk in this door. I haven't been in an AA meeting for eight years. I think I'm going to have to get another set of books. I'm going to have to get another sobriety date. I'm going to have to get another sponsor, and I'm going to have to try to retrench myself and try again to get sober again. And I was terrified and I went into that meeting and I won't go into much detail at all, but I was terrified when I got there, but I was also relieved to be there because I knew that I could embrace a new way of life maybe and get sober maybe and drop my old life and embrace a new life. Maybe I wasn't sure, but I, I think, I think I was thinking that I could do it possibly. So I wasn't a hundred percent sold, but I was hopeful and then they called on me. And that's <laughs> that's when the tears started. Right. That is when the tears started. And uh, it took me, I mean, a full 30 seconds to be able to get myself together enough to where I could catch my breath enough as the tears rolled down my face and streamed down my face. And I got to the point after about 30 seconds of silence and every single person in this meeting at 1919 Apple street, Oceanside, California staring at me. And I remember several of them turning around in their folding metal chairs and looking back over their shoulder and they're like, who's this guy, Mike, that they called on and hasn't said a word yet for 30 seconds. It's like that deadly silence. You know, all they can hear is me sobbing. That's the only sound in the room. And eventually what I was able to choke out is, my name's Mike. I'm an alcoholic. I used to come to AA a long time ago. I've been drinking every day for eight years, and I don't know how to stop drinking. I need you to help me because I can't stop drinking on my own. Please help me. Wow. That's what I said. And it was silent in the room. I was still sobbing, not uncontrollably, but for sure crying. Right. They kind of just looked at me and were like, okay, wow, that was real. That was real talk. We don't know who this dude is. We've, none of us have ever seen this guy. And I haven't had any drugs or alcohol since that day on October the 10th of the year 2000. And I'm grateful for that. And for me now, the circle and the triangle represents, you know, hope and love and compassion and grace. But when I first rolled in, like you were just talking about a minute ago, I saw that circle and triangle. I was like, yo, man, I don't know about this. Recovery, you know, service and unity, right? I was scared when I saw that the first time because I didn't want to be an AA, man. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want to have to do any of that stuff. But so, do, you know, do you know how much I admire men and women that come back into the room? Because here's what I know about this guy today. 
every single meeting I've been in, every single meeting that someone has come back in, I have gone up after the meeting's over and I've said, tell me about it. Because <laughs> here's what I know. Yeah. I don't have another one in me. Yeah. I don't, I don't think like, you either. I, From I, everything I, you've told us, I don't I, think I, you do either. I know, and I'll get to my yeah. sponsor and why he, why yeah. I picked him in a minute. But I, I needed to know what what was going on in your head when you came back. At what, what, what? And tell me if I'm right. You started slowing down on your meetings. Well, I was just young. I don't know why I went back out. Probably because right. I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I didn't fully diagnose the whole thing, but I was young. I got sober young. I got sober at 19 the first time and went back out at 21. And I know that when I came back, if somebody would came up to me and said, why did you go back out? I would be like, I don't know, man. I drank because I'm an alcoholic. I don't, right. really, I don't really have a whole lot of reasons why I did it, but I for sure relapsed and I for sure can't stop drinking and I for sure need your help. And... They welcomed me with open arms. They said, welcome home. They said, we sure hope we see you ass tomorrow, not like five days from now. We recommend right. that you come here tomorrow morning. This is like an 8 o'clock meeting. They're like, we have a 7 a.m. meeting. We have a noon meeting. We have a 6 p.m. and we have an 8 p.m. And then sometimes we have a 10 o'clock candlelight meeting. And they broke me off the schedule and they broke me off the new literature. And I won't go into a lot of detail, but long story short, I picked up a sponsor that night, which was my first night back. Huge. And I went out to lunch with four Marines that were in trouble for drinking on base in San Diego, California at Camp Pendleton, which is just north of Oceanside, California and just south of San Clemente. And I uh, went to IHOP with these four Marines and I won't go into detail on this particular podcast about what happened at that IHOP, but it was, uh, the end part of my surrender and my step one experience was with those guys. Cause I just remember I could not stop crying at IHOP after the AA meeting, <laughs> after I had gotten a new set of literature, a new sobriety date, new, sponsor knew everything man that was just my first day that's my first two hours of, of being back in recovery after an eight-year relapse you know if you want to use a treatment center term or word relapse it was an eight-year uh, drinking episode and I did a lot of the same stuff that you did uh, I had a job during that time um, I graduated college during that time I was able to get some forward momentum maybe because I was young and full of gumption but the alcohol and the drug addiction for me was ramping up in the background it just kept ramping up and, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with it because I thought I could handle it and I thought I was pretty smart and I thought I was pretty healthy and I thought that I just liked to party and have a good time but then it just got to the point where it got to be every day and it turned on me like a viper and right. just destroyed me. And it, I didn't know it at the time. Everything I learned in my life, it seems like it's kind of in hindsight. I look back over those eight years of that relapse and I'm like, yo, Michael, it killed uh, your career in a lot of ways. It killed any kind of boy-girl relationships that you were trying to get going because you were drunk every day and you can't be fully present and sober for a female in your life. If you're drunk and high every day and scheming and lying and cheating and stealing and looking for an angle on every single deal, it's hard to be f fully present for a female in your life. But I chose alcohol and illegal drugs over uh, career advancement. I chose alcohol and illegal drugs over uh, having a, a really high level uh, relationship with a female. I chose it over having any kind of spiritual life because I really wasn't interested in any kind of spiritual life unless the California Highway Patrol was behind me in a squad car with their red and blue lights activated. Right. And then I got real <laughs> spiritual right. real quick. So 
alcohol damaged me in several, several, several ways. Every way that alcohol can destroy or damage a human, I allowed it to happen to me spiritually, financially, emotionally, sexually, mentally. Every way that you can be damaged as a human being by active addiction, I allowed that to happen to me. And eventually I hit bottom and I said the three words that most people, maybe every single person that's been on this podcast has said at some point, I said, God, help me. I said, God, help me. I can't do this anymore. I can no longer imagine life sober and I can no longer imagine life drunk. I'm at a jumping off place. I don't know how to be sober. And I obviously can't continue to drink and use drugs every day because I've reached a dead end in every area of my life. And that's, that's what happened to me. Did you ever it's, run the numbers? What Esti- do you mean? Estimated numbers on how much you drank and how much you drugged? No. I did. I, I didn't. And then I, there's a guy that goes to Aquarius that always throws out the number 100,000. He's always huh. he's always throwing out that number 100,000. I won't mention his name, and I don't right. even know if he's still alive anymore, but he's always talking about, I spent $100,000 on drinking. Well, I probably spent a lot more than that because I was a pretty aggressive dude, and I was... Um, I mean, I guess I'll just go ahead and say it. I mean, the only reason I created this podcast is to be real and honest and tell the truth and not powder coat stuff and throw up smoke screens. The only reason I did this podcast is to help people. And so the real the real deal is I was actively, actively, actively addicted, addicted, addicted to marijuana. And the kind of marijuana that I smoked was $500 an ounce. Right. And I did not play when I got those ounces. It was, it was go time. It was not con- conservation time and let's say firm some for tomorrow. No, it was go time. So I was smoking $500 ounces on the daily and I was getting real aggressive with it. And I did not have the financial wherewithal to make that happen. So I had to start embezzling, uh, or you, if, that's a nice word. If you want to use the other word, stealing money from the companies that I was employed for and working for. So I was working to finance. I was work. I was stealing to finance my drug habit and working to try to get the paycheck. And then in combination with the paycheck and the embezzlement, I would have enough to finance my addiction. And that for me was a cycle in a circle. And that cycle and the circle kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it just get, it kept getting tighter. And the same thing happened with my life and my social circle of friends. And it seems like the last few years of my drinking, I would, I would um, look at um, everything in my life, no matter what it was, and compare it to, if you can picture a scale in your head where you've got alcohol on one end of the scale and the other end is um, healthy relationships, alcohol always won, or uh, alcohol's on one end of the scale and um career advancements on the other I always chose alcohol alcohol always won in every single scenario until I stopped messing with it and and was able to get sober and get some forward traction so let's let's get back to you and talk about you're rolling into the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings you're seeing in the circle you're seeing this triangle you're telling yourself no, this the, is a mistake the first meeting is t- <laughs> so I'm I'm Coming up to the door, I open the door, and you know, I hear this all the time now. And it was me, man. I was, I was that guy. I walked in. You didn't look like me. You didn't act like me. You'd never been like. You've never been here, been there, been this, been that, driven that, done that, gone there, gone. There. And I'm just. I mean, I am just uh, like I'm over it already, and I'm just in the front part of the room. So I don't want to talk to any of you. Like you're not my people. You're not my tribe. But you're so. in crisis, man. That's like too, that's a very dualistic way to look at it. Nope, it's the day after God like pulled pulled it. Like I'm 
Yeah. Like, I'm just there, right? Okay. I go and sit in the far corner of the room. Yeah. Now, I don't want to talk to any of you people. Mm-hmm. But you're weird, right? right? Totally. And I look <laughs> over. I swear to you, I see the promises on the wall. Night step promises. And I read them, and I get to the bottom, and I just go, uh-huh. It's a multi-level marketing scheme. Somebody's going to ask me for my credit card, and I'm going to have to throat punch somebody. And that's exactly what I thought. Yeah. And I sat there, and as people started sharing, it got spooky. It got real. Because everyone, it's like somebody had given them an intel sheet on Mike McCoy. And they're telling my lies and my secrets and my things. And it, it was just weird. But there's this one guy. And I didn't know any of the language within the four walls, you know. Um, but he had what I wanted. He owned his own business. He knew the big book. He was very good when he spoke. Um, nicest man ever. So I decided... I'm going to come back and see if he acts like this again. So I go back. It's Tempe bloopers. That's where this was. So I go back the second day. Still not ready to talk to anybody. So the third day I decide I'm going to, I'm going to ask him to be my temporary sponsor because a permanent sponsor. Now, hold on. Okay. That's like getting married. That's like uh, we're getting a mortgage together, you know, no, but a temporary I can live with. So I went and asked him to be my temporary sponsor. And we walked out into the the alley where everybody was parked. And he put me on the spot. And I wasn't ready for it. And he said, Mike, are you done? And caught me off guard. And I remember looking at him. And he goes, are you done drinking? And... It's another one of those, like, Pastor Kent Rogers moments where I was one one-thousandth honest, and I looked at him, and his name's Mark, and I looked at him, and I said, Mark, I can't stand here and tell you three years from now I'm not going to be on the golf course with a beer in my hand. I can't do it. And he goes, here's what we're going to do. He goes, we're not going to drink today. He had a big book. He hands me this big book. And he goes, we're going to read the doctor's opinion through page 164. Um, we're not going to drink today, but I'll tell you what. When we get together tomorrow, we might have a beer, okay? How's that? And I'm like, I met the cool kid on the playground. Like, <laughs> we're on the smoking porch. We're going to go get tanked tomorrow. This is great. I go home. I'm all excited. I'm starting to read my book. I go the next day. I don't even give him a chance to say anything. I go right up. And I go, we're going to get that beer today. And he looks at me, and here, here comes the knockout punch. He goes, no, Mike, don't you remember? I said, we're not going to drink today, but we might get a beer tomorrow. And all of a sudden, for an idiot like me that can't, that was trying to comprehend stuff that I didn't need to comprehend, it just became about, 24 hours. It came about of one day at a time, and all of a sudden, somebody put it in words that this simpleton could comprehend. And I was like, oh, so it's just for today. And so when I woke up the next morning, I said, 
It's just for today. And strung a few of those together, and we started working the steps. Now, step one, <laughs> through our conversations, you're going to understand what I'm about to say. You know, step one was a little difficult because I really didn't think any part of my life was unmanageable. That's heavy denial. <laughs> that is heavy, heavy denial. Um, but I've got, I mean, and, and it's so neat. We're still in touch. I still talk to Mark, you know, and, uh, he, you know, but, but, but he did things like, oh, he was the nicest man I ever knew until I asked him to be my sponsor. <laughs> and then he, then he wanted me to pick, I mean, the, the gall of him. He wanted me to pick up cigarette butts. Okay. And then he takes me to the stag meeting. Mm-hmm. He, we're walking up, and he just stops. He goes, stand here and greet everybody. And I'm looking around like, dude, this is not my meeting. Why, why would I greet people at their meet? They should be greeting the great Mike McCoy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but I did it because I'm afraid of him at this point. Yeah. And here's what that did. In my very early sobriety... Mark was teaching me about service work, and I didn't even know it. Yeah. And I didn't understand what it could do for me. I just knew I was supposed to do it because I've finally gotten to a place where I'm going to take direction from another man, and that is something for 54 years of my life I never did. And I'm starting to do it with a guy that I don't even know. And things are starting to work out like I'm not getting in trouble you know um, I'm starting to put one foot in front of the other and, and I remember because I have such horrible baggage from my life so I thought um, Mark said we're just going to try and do the next right thing and in my head I'm like that's never going to help what I've done to people in my life over the, over the course of 54 years. It's not, and all of a sudden somewhere in, into this doing the next right thing, it's kind of like you and that balance, you know, all of a sudden the do the next right thing is, is starting to outweigh what I think are the horrific things I've done in my life. Um, Mark taught me so much. That ego punching and deflation talking about, oh, here, why don't you stand here and be the greeter? Oh, why don't you go pick over the, go over there and pick up those cigarette butts? That's massive ego puncturing and deflation. And in hindsight, my sponsor did the same thing to me. And what I can see was he was trying to help me to get right-sized and help me to get acquainted with the theory that I'm no better than anybody. I'm no worse than anybody. I'm equal with everybody. Because in my mind, I was always playing this game where I was labeling you and labeling me. And in early sobriety, I ran into this lady who I love um, until one day she told me in early sobriety to go in the back of the AA group that I was in and clean out all the ashtrays because it was a smoking group. And her name was Ann Swanson, and she's passed away, and that's why I'm using her full name, Ann Swanson. And she said, hey, Mike, why don't you go back? And this was after the noon meeting, so it's about 1.15, 1.30. 
She's like, Mike, go in the back and get all those ashtrays and go to the sink and, and like clean, dump them all out and then clean them out so they'll be ready for the six o'clock meeting. And then she's talking, I'm make, I'm, I think my face was scrunching up. I think my face started to scrunch up. And after she finished saying that very offensive thing to me, I looked at her like she was super confused. I looked at her like she was super confused. And I was like, hey, Ann, I don't smoke. I was like, if you haven't noticed, I'm in the non-smoking meetings, not the smoking meetings. She's like, hey, Mike, guess what? I didn't ask you if you smoked or not. I asked you to go in the back of the club and dump out all the cigarettes and clean the ashtrays so they're ready for the 6 o'clock meeting. And I was like, what? (laughs) And so I liked her, and she was way older than I was, and she had the respect and love of everybody there, and I did not. And I liked the place, and I wanted to be accepted there. So I was like, okay. I didn't say it, but I was like, I was like, okay, this is going to be super gross, and I guess I'm going to go do this even though I don't smoke, and I don't understand why she's asking me to do this. Okay, so hindsight is she was trying to teach me to be a member among members, uh, be of service to somebody, and go outside of myself and do something I didn't want to do, and just try to get right size, man. Let go of that ego, which is false pride for me. And just get into service, and it's not exactly how I would have chosen um, the path that I would have wanted to to learn about service. But Anne Swanson was not concerned about what my thoughts were about any of those situations. She just told me to do it, right? And I did it, and I've been of service ever since. And uh, another way, a sponsor of mine tricked me in early sobriety. Uh, I was living in Hawaii. I was living in the Hawaiian Islands, and there's this treatment center there, and I believe it's called Hina Malka. I believe that's the name of the treatment center. And we were driving there. My sponsor and I were driving there one night uh, on H3 Highway, cutting cutting through, and uh, it's kind of going towards Honolulu. I lived on the North Shore in Haleiwa at Sunset Beach, and uh, we're cruising through, and he... Uh, says, yeah, yeah, I heard there's going to be a really good speaker there tonight at this treatment center we're going to. <laughs> no. I was like, yeah, right on, bro. And he's like, you know who it's going to be? And I go, uh, no, bro. No. And he goes, you. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and I was like, I only had like a year and a half. or I, I think I had like maybe, dude, I had like 14 or 15 months sober. And he's like, yeah, bro, you're going to be the speaker tonight. And uh, you need to talk for 50 minutes. Have you ever told your story before? And I was like, oh, my God. So we get to this treatment center, and we roll in there, and all these cats have young, young sobriety. They've all got between zero days and, like, 30 days. So they probably looked at me with, like, 15 or 16 months sober, and we're like, oh, my God, this guy's been sober forever. But in my own mind, I didn't feel like I had been sober that long. And he just explained to me that um, I was going to be learn how to be a service that night and tell my story. And I definitely had something to offer these guys because the only thing those guys knew how to do is stay sober between somewhere between zero days and 30 days. And you've been able to put this amount together, uh, you and God and higher power. And I was like, okay. So I went in there and uh, I did it. And uh, I learned how to be of service. And it was a 
It's a beautiful experience. I just will never forget the way some of my AA sponsors have tricked me uh-huh. into getting into service. And I want to talk about one other thing real quick. Um, you mentioned W.T. White High School, which is in North Dallas. And I sponsored a guy that went to W.T. White High School. And what he did his senior year there, he got real drunk one night, the night before a football game. So I think the high school football games there are on Friday night. So on Thursday night, he got real drunk and he was mad at the school and mad at the kids that went there and went mad at the football players. So he went out on the football field in his car the night before into donuts all over the football wheel and trenched it. The word that he used is I trenched the football field drunk the night before um, a football game the next night. And I feel really bad about this. And he was telling me this when he was like 50. So this had been like, I mean, he had been carrying this with him for years. And we were talking about making amends at this point. So he, he laid this out to me. And he's like, Mike, there's no way that I can make amends to those football players or those students or anything like that. And I sat there and thought for a minute and prayed about it. I go, yeah. Well, I got an idea. Here's the deal. Next Saturday, the, we, you do owe an amends for that, by the way. So let's see if we can make that right. Let's let's have you show up there next Saturday at 8 a.m. with a bunch of trash bags. I mean a bunch of trash bags. And what I want you to do is I want you to roam the entire property of W.T. White High School from the faculty parking lot to the student parking lot to the entire circumference of the school as well as the football field. And I want you to pick up every single piece of trash that you see that's bigger than the fingernail on my pinky finger. Oh. I go look at my pinky finger, and you see that 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 fingernail on my pinky finger. Anything that you see that's bigger than that, I want you to clean up and pick up. And he's like, "Okay, I will do it." And I go, "That's how we're going to make amends to WT White High School. You're going to go up there and clean it up on a Saturday." And so he did. Um, and he called me afterwards, and he was he wasn't crying, but he was borderline crying. And he said, "Thank you for that." It took me four hours um, to do it. I have several bags of trash. <laughs> Those people are really right. dirty up there, right. and. Uh, I feel clean and I feel free and thank you. I never thought that I could feel even with for what I did to that school and to those football players and the opposing team as well. And so he got free of that particular offensive act due to the fact that he was inebriated on alcohol. But there's all different types of creative ways that you can work with your sponsor or your sponsor can work with you to make amends. And I'm not going to go into all the different scenarios and ways to do it, but we do have techniques and ways that you can make amends to people that have passed away that are no longer with us. We have ways that you can make amends to the IRS. We have ways that you can make amends to people that um, don't, don't are no longer here and and institutions. And and there's just so many different ways. There's also several ways and several times that we're going to advise you uh, to, to not contact the person that you want to contact, you know, and please leave them alone. That's your best amends to this particular ex-girlfriend. You do not need to go look her up on Facebook. You right. do not need to make face-to-face amends with her. She's married with three children now, and you need to leave her alone. Uh, I realize that you want to go try to find her, but no, we're, we're not going to do that on this particular one. So right. there's a lot of counsel that takes place and movement between the sponsors and sponsees. Sobershares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions. My email address, once again, is mike at Sobershares.com. You can record a voicemail for us by clicking the blue microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner of our website, and I will play that back on the next episode. You get to hear your own voice on the next episode of Sobershares. That'd be really cool. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute, and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content at the highest level. Think of it like passing a basket at a meeting to help keep SoberShares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses, and it will take you less than one or two minutes to complete the process. It's a link to PayPal, and it's very easy. You can use a debit or a credit card. I want to mention our listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward in the last week. We have one this week, and his name is Daniel J. So thank you very much, Daniel J., for making a donation to Sober Shares via the PayPal link on our website. Let's get to the listener feedback. This was left for us on Apple Podcast by KM98654. They say, I needed this podcast. Love it. Thank you for providing this to the world. The next listener feedback is from John D. Hi, Michael. I stumbled upon your podcast by accident on Spotify while I was looking for AA speaker tapes. What an awesome find. I've listened to every episode and I am now going back through again. I have received so much inspiration and information from your guest, but I have to say that I relate to GP the most. I have now been sober for 14 months after 35 years of drinking. Keep up the good work. So thank you for that feedback, John D. I want to let you know that I took a screenshot of that and I sent that via text message photograph to my buddy GP and he was super stoked to get that. So thank you for making his day. This next one is from Eric M. I just wanted to thank you for putting this podcast together. My brother, John M., who you recorded on episode 24, shared his interview with me, and I have been hooked ever since. Today, I celebrate six months sober. I woke up on October the 17th of 2021, hungover, and decided I was done drinking. I don't attend AA, but the more I listen to your guest stories, the more I can relate to their experiences. I've totaled multiple cars, spent time in jail, gone to rehab, woke up in strange places, and the list goes on and on. I grew up in AA with my mom and stepdad attending Al-Anon. I actually met my wife of 13 years in Alateen. Thank you for making these shows happen. Take care. So thank you to Eric M. Jan D. says, I did not realize that you had a Facebook page until yesterday. I really enjoy your podcasts. I'm 25 years without a drink and live in Australia. So until recently, live meetings have been tricky. Thank you for your efforts. So yeah, let's uh, thank Jan D for that and just mention that we do have a Facebook page. The next feedback is from Kyle M. Hey Michael, thanks for sharing your story. I'm a bit of a closed book, but I like to listen. So thank you so much. Really appreciate everybody reaching out to us at Mike at SoberShares.com. I want to ask for one other favor from the listeners out there. If you guys can think of any additional questions that you want me to ask future guests on SoberShares, I would be happy for you to email me at Mike at SoberShares.com and I will incorporate and use your question in future episodes of this podcast and that would be super cool. Now it's time to get back to our guest and pick up where we left off. I want to talk to you a little bit more and have you tell us a little bit about your early sobriety. Can you paint a picture for us of what was going on with you in early sobriety? I had gotten to the point where I was taking direction from Mark. And again, and I mentioned it earlier, it was was just so important for me because I never, ever wanted anyone else to try and guide me or coach me or tell me what to do or ask me what to do. And and now I I had finally gotten to that point of desperation of, you know what, just I, I, I can't do it. Just tell me how to live. And Mark was doing that. And the 
you know, in the early part, um, he stressed rigorous and thorough honesty as it does in our literature. Um, and I remember at about two months sober, I called him and I said, uh, you know, this rigorous and thorough honesty, it's great for, for everybody else, but I'm about to lose my place. Because, see, Mike the Magician had stopped playing the shell game with my money. And he said, I know. He said, but it's going to be okay. You know, I mean, you might lose your place or you might not. And so if you remember, I got baptized on April 1st, which was Easter Sunday. And then I, I woke up sober on April 8th. Well, on Father's Day, which was two months and nine days into my sobriety, Father's Day is when I lost my place. And I became homeless. So here was this guy that at one point, you know, my wife and I, we had these homes, I had these cars, um, and I was faced with homelessness, but it didn't even faze me. I mean, it was amazing. It was just like, oh, okay, well, this is how it's going to be today for this. It's going to be okay. And I just kept doing what Mark said was the next right thing. Now, I popped from uh, a couple of different states because I had some things I could do for people um, just to make odd job money. Um, I went and rehabbed a couple of houses for a buddy of mine in Arkansas. Um, he was out of state, and they needed those houses fixed up and on the market, did that. Then I popped back into Wichita, and uh, I had some guys there that... Uh, that would let me, I, I tore apart a couple of decks. I helped uh, this guy build a deck. Um, I think one of the most important days for me uh, was I had a buddy, and he, off, he asked, you know, do you want to make 25 bucks? I need to take a load of garbage to the dump, the city dump. And I was like, again, here's a guy that at one point never had to check his bank balance. And could just, you know, do anything he wanted to. Okay, $25 now is $15 for gas, and I can eat for three days on $10. That's how much this program has taught me of all of a sudden, you know, this is how I'm going to live now um, versus the reckless way before. So I took garbage to the dump uh, with him, and it was humbling. I mean, I needed that experience at that moment in my life because it was, look, this is, I mean, you're blessed. Look, I mean, how many people don't have the opportunity to make $25 in a day? Um, and so I did that, and I was, I was living in a vacant house in Wichita, hardwood floors, and, uh, you know, you might think, someone might think, that that would be the worst point in my life. You know, if you look at the entirety of, you know, where I've been, what I've done, these things and whatever. But it was a night in that vacant house in Wichita that I finally looked around. I was probably about six months sober at this point, And I finally found the peace and serenity that I had tried to drink my way to, drug my way to, lie, cheat, and steal my way to, um, go to an event and get, it's like, no, I'm sitting in this vacant house, and all of a sudden, I can breathe. I'm getting the most oxygen I've ever gotten in my life, 
because it's just okay. And I know that I already have everything I need. And it's the friendships I had. That was my revelation of I don't need anything. All I need are friendships. And I have those. So let's be blessed and be happy about that and carry on. Um, so that, uh, I stayed there for another couple months. I went back to Arizona. I was doing some odd jobs there. And uh, I woke up one day. And it was much like February 16th of 2016 or April 8th of 2018. I woke up and I called my sponsor and I said, God put on my heart, I'm supposed to be back in Dallas. Now, keep in mind, I have not been back here in 17 years. So it's not like, you know, hey, I come back all the time. Now I've come back to visit, but I mean to live. And my sponsor was not from here. And he said, you're going to go to Dallas. You're going to go to the Preston Group. You're going to meet blank and blank, and they're going to get you started. Now, the challenging part was I was homeless, and I didn't have any money. <laughs> so I detailed six cars for $50 a car um, to get back here, and I did. And a friend of mine from high school, um, his mom was kind enough to let me stay in a room in her house until I got back on my feet. And I thought I would be back in sports, um, given my background. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, the Stewart Title and Trust, I was with them for nine and a half years, but these title companies were popping up on my radar screen. And I was having some interviews, and I had like seven, company, seven title companies I was in communication with. I wasn't interviewing with all of them. But, and I got to a third interview um, with the firm I'm with now, with my uh, commercial real estate firm. And I remember I got invited back for this third interview. And there's, uh, I don't know if you've had Reno John on here, but he's, uh, uh, he's become a dear, dear friend of mine. And he's got 40 years sober. And I remember, you know, talking with John and I was all excited like okay Thursday I got this third interview they're gonna offer me the job I mean I'm definitely getting out over the tips of my skis and here's what he texted me and this is as profound to me today as when Mark shrank the world to a 24-hour period um Reno John sent me he goes uh congrats on your interview but today is Tuesday not Wednesday at 2. It's fun to look forward to Wednesday at 2, but the guy could postpone. He could interview someone today, or he could die. So let's stay in the now. What do you got going today? And that was like mind-boggling for me. It was, it was almost like a Socrates thing moment in my life because I'm like, oh, well, he's right. I should stay where my feet are, and that's what I took from that. Do so I go to the interview the third interview, and uh, my president, and I'm still with him today, as I said, um, he said, we've discussed it internally, and uh, we're going to uh, offer you this position, and it's back, same thing that I had with Stuart Title, which is it's mind-boggling for me, because, you know, I'm a homeless guy, right? And I said, when would you like me to start? And he said, Monday. 
Now, that's a really quick turnaround. Anytime I've ever had a job, someone hires you, it's two or three weeks before you start. And I held it together till I got down in my car. Because you know what Monday was? Mm-hmm. April 8th. <laughs> it was my one-year sobriety birthday. Wow. It was also the first day I chaired a meeting at Preston Group. And this is, this is God working in my life. And the more time I get under me, the closer I feel to him. And that falls into, you know, the 11th step, prayer meditation. Maybe we'll talk about that. But um, So I, I start with this firm, and we're going through that and uh, getting up to speed. And then here comes covid you know, about the time I was starting to get some traction. And our owner of the firm said, uh, well, I want all the offices in Texas to order out lunch every day and let's support our local uh, our local restaurateurs. They're going to need it. Now, this is day three of COVID. This is how forward-thinking our owner is. And there's 95 offices, so he's not buying lunch for, like, four people. It's 95 offices of about 10 people each office. Well, nobody wants to meet with a business development guy, so I go to my president, and I'm like, well, I mean, nobody wants to meet with a biz dev guy. What do you think if I started cooking for the attorneys and the staff? Um, because we're supposed to order lunch out. He goes, that's a great idea. So three days a week in COVID – uh, early COVID, 2020 COVID. But I got nerdy about it. I got on the internet and I started reading and I started just playing with some things and I started honing my craft. That's the best way to, to put it. Now, I've cooked all my life, but I've never cooked for like a, a, an audience continuously. And that's what I had for about eight months. I got to cook for the office and, and you know, each day it was something different. How many people? What were you shooting at a day? I had, we had about nine people, 10 people in the office. Okay. So this is rolling and people are loving my food inside of the firm. Then I get a communication from someone at Augusta National. And it's someone that I had worked with in my past. She knew me in the days when I was kind of a good guy. She was aware of my crash and burn. She's kind of followed my story up to this point, and she said, would you consider cooking at Augusta? And my answer was, I would consider taking the garbage out at Augusta. And so... Tell uh, some of our listeners that don't know what that is. What, what is Augusta? Yeah, Augusta National Golf Club. It's the, where the Masters is played. And the most prestigious country club in America. <laughs> it's, it's unfathomable that even... Whether or not I I get the gig or not, it's just unfathomable to me. Now, think back. Here's a guy that two different times thought I had nothing left to offer the world. And we're getting ready to get to the interesting part. So I go through the interview process with the executive chef there in Berkman's place. Um, And I got the opportunity offered to me to come in and... You know, I'm the first guy to say I don't belong there. I mean, I beat that in all honesty. I'm just a guy, you know, and that's what this program has taught me. It's, you know, it's a humbleness of, 
you know, wow. Where in the old days, it would have been, oh, no, no, I just, you know, do I get a parking space with this? I went this year, I'm sorry, last year to uh, Augusta. How are those pimento cheese sandwiches? <laughs> I didn't even get one. You didn't get one. I heard they're like $2 or $3. That's, you know, in my corporate life, uh, when I was with Stuart Title and Trust, uh, I, I did go to the Masters eight times with clients. Oh, wow. I did not know that. But l- let me let me pull it tight for you. Yeah, yeah. So those eight times, that's in those the snotty times of my life of <laughs> where do I get to go next, right? Yeah, okay. And how many plastic cups can I accrue while I drink beer on the course? <laughs> Last year, in a kitchen, in the middle of a building, never seeing really the course during the day or seeing any players and working 14 hours a day last year means more to me than all eight of when I got to go because now I'm now I'm able to participate I'm able to give a little something back um and I learned so much in the relationships I've made there are going to fall into play because you talked about, you know, chef to the shelters, and we're going to get to that. I'm real close to that, I promise. Um, So I get back from the Masters. Right before I go to the Masters, my Sunday school class over here, they kind of grab me and go, okay, um, you're feeding people out of, you know, I'm I'm doing like feeding the 24-hour club. I'm cooking at my house. I'm putting it, packaging it up. I'm getting it in the car and I'm driving it down there. And sometimes I cook down there. My Sunday school class, um, they said, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get your nonprofit status. And so I got, next thing I know, I'm on a Zoom call. There's four of them and we're meeting and there's an attorney involved, and the next thing I know, poof, uh, I have my nonprofit status as of uh, for Chef to the Shelters as of March 31st of last year, and then September 14th of last year, we got our 501c3 status from the IRS. Wow. Um, now, I, I'm going to segue. I'm going to set you up. Where do you think the name Chef to the Shelters came from? That was my next question. <laughs> that was my next question. Where did you come up with the name okay. Chef to the Shelters? You remember my Cali days, right? I was in Beverly Hills, and then I was down in Tustin, you know, with Anaheim, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm. this is how I know when God puts things on my heart. Yeah. Like, I'm driving around one day, and uh, it, was, uh, it was before the March deal of last year for uh, a nonprofit status. And I'm driving in my car, and I just start laughing, and I go, chef to the stars. I'm chef to the shelters. <laughs> and I, that's about what I was doing. I was uh-huh. laughing, driving around. Yeah. But this is how I know when it's God working in my life. It kept popping into my head about five more times over about a month. And then I went, okay, I think we're going to be chef to the shelters. And then all of this stuff started happening. Um, what I remember, uh, early sobriety, uh, my second sponsor, um, he asked me to meet him and his wife. We're in Arizona. Um, 
meet them for dinner, and then we're going to go with some of their sober friends that I've never met, and we're going to go to a speaker meeting, and I go, we go to Sweet Tomatoes, we go in, we're getting our food, we sit down, and here comes the bill. I have a pit, my stomach is just upset because all of a sudden I'm uncomfortable. Now, on the other side of that, here's a guy who got free Super Bowl tickets and expected a parking pass. Okay, now all of a sudden I've got a conscience and I'm like, I can't pay for dinner. Now, Bob knew and Bob paid for my dinner and it was extremely uncomfortable for me. So I leave there. I'm just despondent the rest of the night. I don't even know what the speaker meeting was. Anyway, so we go through the next week and I'm doing some odd jobs, trying to make a buck here and a buck there. And Bob says, we're going to do the same thing again Friday night. And I'm, so now I'm in a tight spot. So I got to Sweet Tomatoes 45 minutes early. I sat in the front seat of my car. Because now I've got rigorous and thorough honesty, so I can't lie, especially to my sponsor. Like, <laughs> So I eat a sleeve of crackers. I see everybody going into Sweet Tomatoes. I get out of my car. I go in. I sit down. And they said, are you going to order something? And I said, no, thank you. I've already had dinner. This is what this program has taught me. Okay. Here's a guy that expected everything in his life to be given to him at one point. And now, no, this is how I'm going to live now. I'm going to live between the lines, and the lines are very defined. There's no gray area anymore in my life. It's either right or it's wrong. There's nothing in between. Um, so now popping back to the chef to the shelters part, as I get to make meals for the 24-hour club or for Maggie's House or Phoenix House, Texas or Simply Grace or Turtle Creek Recovery, all these beautiful places that have men and women in uh, early sobriety, I'm making manicotti, homemade manicotti um, for 200 You know, I'm making Caesar salad with real Caesar dressing um, and fresh cut romaine. I'm doing lasagnas. I'm doing fajitas. I'm doing meals, and it's in our mission statement, meals that speak of dignity and respect because I remember this guy that was eating a sleeve of crackers in early sobriety that really wanted a good meal. But I wasn't going to ask for one, and I wasn't going to take one. But now I'm in a position to give back, okay? Now I go back to Mark asking me to pick up cigarette butts. I go back to Mark asking me to greet people at a meeting. And I'm tying that in with something a guy in August of 15 and March of 18 didn't think he had anything to offer the world. But I do. And we all do. And everybody does. And I, if there's anybody out there that needs help, 
you've got the contact information and you'll share that. There's the hotline. There's meetings everywhere. There's the meeting guide, which has been so wonderful for me. The meeting guide is just, I mean, once it knows it's me, it will tell me where the closest meeting is. But my point is, I know now that I have something that I can give back, and I'm so happy I didn't take my life. I'm so fortunate that I've had men in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that have guided me, and they've literally taught a 54-year-old how to live, and they have reworked how I approach life. And I cannot have more gratitude than I do for that. That's fantastic, man. It's like you've been reborn. It's so cool that you found something that you're so passionate about so early in sobriety. And you, I think that maybe you got sober so you could be of service to other people. It seems like what it is. I love it. I wanted to read something. You gave me a postcard before we started this podcast. And I just want to let everybody know if they want to find out more about this project. So you can go to chef to the shelters.org and you can also email him directly at Mike at chef to the shelters.org chef to the shelters mission is to provide meals and to share our experience, strength and hope with men and women in the early recovery through our walk in faith and our journey in sobriety. That is so, so cool. I'm going to read this backside of this card right now. It says, Chef to the Shelters was established to serve men and women in early sobriety meals, which speak of dignity and respect, but it has grown into much more. We will have a training program for men and women with a year or more of sobriety to learn fundamentals in the kitchen by learning under the chefs, much like Cafe Momentum, but for people in recovery. 2022 brings on exciting new endeavors. We are working to secure a building and begin to serve over 500 people a day, but we can't do this without your support. So you're able to make a support uh, to this project uh, at Venmo, at Chefs to the Shelters, and it's really, really going to be a great project. He's already got it underway. It's rolling. They're looking to get some more momentum. So if you want to help, all donations are tax deductible, and he wants to thank you for your gift. So that's just part of his story and what he's going through right now. So I definitely wanted to bring that into focus here in the podcast and give him an opportunity to talk about that. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, for sure. I'm super excited. What about sponsorship? Let's talk about sponsorship (laughs) for a minute. You've talked about two, you've talked about two guys already. (laughs) And I wanted to bring uh, into focus, Gary, if you could, if you wanted to, or you can just go in any direction with this uh, question. If you want to tell me a little bit more about sponsorship uh, that you've received. And as far as you mentioning Gary, I don't know if you knew this or not, but he was a guest on this podcast. He was episode number 13. So if anybody wants to hear this guy that we might be talking about here in a minute, if Mike wants to, Gary is the guest on episode 13 of Sober Share. So if you want to go back and listen to that when you can. So what do so, you- so Gary was lucky number 13. Mm-hmm. <laughs> number 13. <laughs> you know, Gary C. Is, uh, is who we're talking about. Here's what I know about me. I don't think I have another out in me. I mean, I think this is it. When I met Gary... He was 35 years sober, and I was watching how active he is, um, not only in attending meetings, but more so on that um, how many times a week he's sharing his story 
where he goes, Zoom meetings, out of town. I mean, he is really committed to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? A guy like that at 35 years, if I've got a chance in this fight, I got to be that guy, just like that guy. It's kind of like Mark had what I wanted, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. And I saw what Gary had. Now, the humorous part, when I asked, when I asked Gary if he would uh, be my sponsor, he, <laughs> he said very seriously, he goes, well, Mike, um, boy, uh, in, order to, in order to sponsor a guy like you, I'm, I'm going to have to let three or four other sponsees go. of course he was joking um but gary is a guy that i relate to and i trust 100 percent, just like i did mark just like i did bob i mean in a sponsor sponsee relationship you just have to be able to have that trust um because i have to be able to bear it i have to be able to say this is what i did that was wrong here's what my part was what do we do to fix it? And the egomaniac that I came from and the liar and the cheat and, and, you know, that was never part of my makeup for the first 54 years of my life. So I have to make sure I can call my own stuff today. I have to. And I have to have someone like Gary that I can say, here it is. I did it. What do I do next? And then listen to direction from another man. That's fantastic. Yeah, I had to learn that skill set in here as well. It's like before I came in here, I really wasn't honest with another male on this planet. The closest person to me that cared about me was the my dad, but I didn't tell him everything that was going on with me. Even if I was struggling and he's like, how are you doing, Mike? I'd be like, I'm fine. Well, I wasn't fine. But I'm not going to tell my dad that for like 95 different reasons. There's like 95 different reasons I would not tell my dad what was going on with me. So when I came in here and I started to see males uh, being honest with other males on things that I would say is quote unquote embarrassing, like, hey, dude, uh, I got $15 to my name or hey, dude, I can't get any chicks to look at me. Right. Like the words, you look up the word celibate in the dictionary. It is a picture of me, bro. I'm like, Oh, for 365 here the last year, man, there's no chicks looking at me and I got no money. And you know, I'm sad a lot, whatever. But I, those are the kinds of things that I had to learn how to be honest with another male about and talk about. And I learned that through modeling the behavior of the other people that I saw that came before me that were here when I got here that would tell the truth. And it started for me in open discussion meetings. I would sit in open discussion meetings and we would bring up a topic and we would go around the room and let's say there's 60 people in this room in Oceanside, California, where I got sober or Carlsbad or the six step house in Lucadia or Solana Beach or Del Mar or La Jolla. Yeah, all those places. And I would sit in these meetings and I would just see these guys and they would just start telling the truth about 
where they were with their career, where they were with females, where they were economically, where they were emotionally, where they were with their wife, where they were with fear. Yeah. The IRS. Right. You know, they would come in and they would talk and I could look at them and I'd be like, I don't know that dude, but I got a pretty <laughs> strong, I got a pretty strong bullshit detector that's built into me because I'm a bullshitter and I could recognize it. And that guy is telling the truth. There's no bullshit coming out of that guy's mouth. He is telling the truth. And so I learned that being honest with myself and other people was going to take me to where I wanted to go. And where I wanted to go was away from alcoholism and the destruction that it was causing in my life. And the way to that new life was going to be through truth. And a lot of the work that was going to be done was going to be in a room with just me and another man me telling him the truth and getting real with him. And that's where we got real, real heavy duty to work when we got to the fourth step. And then I told him subsequently my fifth step. So I wanted to transition into the fourth step. Can you tell us a little bit about your fourth step experience? I was never the guy that was afraid. Let's read the fourth step before you get rolling. Let me do this real quick. Okay. Because there's people out there. I mean, there's thousands of people out there and, and a lot of us know what it is, but a lot of us don't. So before you roll, here we go. This is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is number four. This is what we're going to talk about. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Right. Um, you know, I know that, that I have heard it in the rooms um, a lot that some people fear the fourth step or worry about it or whatever. And I wasn't, like, by the time I got into these rooms, I'd had it. Like, I was so, I had surrendered, it's over, just tell me what to do. Well, anyway, we get to the fourth step, and I've got a little bit of that attitude still in me, right? And I remember, I'm, I'm doing that inventory, and all of a sudden, I'm like, I got him. I got Mark. Okay, it's my divorce. I had, I had no part <laughs> in my divorce. Okay. Like, this is not, you know, this is what, and I am just, I'm waiting. You know, it's like, you know, I've got it on the last page, and I'm going to close the session, and I'm going to be right, and, you know. And we get to that, and I tell Mark, I go, you know what, Mark? I, I mean, I didn't have a part in this, you know? And I laid out some stuff. My, you know, my case. And you know, Mark sat there and he goes, Mike, let me ask you a few questions. I said, okay. He goes, were you still asking your wife out on dates the way you did when you were dating? And that's a big fat no. And then he said, were you still talking to her the same way you did when you were courting her before you were married? That's a big fat no. And he went on with probably about one or two more. And I looked at him and it was like, it was this nirvana moment for me where I comprehended I have a part in everything, okay? Whether it's a fear, a resentment, whatever it is, that showed me that I do have a part. Now, there's a lot more to it, but I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it publicly. Uh, we went through quite a number of those things, but for me to be able to see that part of me, that opened the floodgates for a lot more of my inventory. I went back and worked on it some more because then all of a sudden I could say, 
Well, I was, you know, I had a part here. I was wrong here. This was my part. This, it, so it was real beneficial to me um, to be, I don't want to say called out, but for Mark to, for Mark to ask those poignant questions. Yeah, for him to gently lead you <laughs> right. to a new perspective and a new way of looking at things. It's like right. we get so locked into our point of view and seeing the world from our point of view and this just becomes the de facto, well, that's the way it happened, or that's the way it is, or even worse, that's the way it's going to be when you start looking out in the future. And one thing that I've learned from these meetings that I've gone to for so many years is that it seems like to me what these meetings do for me is they provide me a perspective readjustment or, or perspective cali- recalibration, which allows me to see life from other points of view besides my own. And the more and more I cut away uh, my own selfishness and add in the new grace of seeing things from other people's points of view, and they might be right and I might be wrong, I'm able to grow as a man and grow as somebody who has something that I would term closer to emotional stability. I don't use the words emotional sobriety because I think that's kind of a weird term or a weird way to discuss it but as far as being a well-adjusted adult little by slow i'm able to figure out that it's not all about me it's not it's not the mic show 24 hours a day (laughs) seven days a week you know i'm supposed to look at things from other people's perspective but one thing i do want to touch on real quick before we roll into the next question is i sponsor a lot of guys subsequently i hear a lot of fist steps and a lot of times when i hear these fist steps there's three parts to the to the four step, which is your sex inventory, your fear inventory, and your resentment inventory. And a lot of times, when we get to either the sex inventory or the resentment inventory, it has to do with things that happened to a lot of these men when they were young. <clears throat> In a, um, this is a difficult or not a difficult. This is a, um, a sensitive topic or whatever, kind of an adult, adult level topic. A lot of these guys that I sponsor, uh, they were uh, sexually molested and stuff as children. And that's super sad and super inappropriate. And there's something that I have to work with a lot of these guys on when we get to that in their four step because it comes up, man. It comes up when we do our sex inventory and when we do our resentment inventory. It usually comes up in the resentment part because they're mad at whoever did it to them. The female, male, it doesn't matter who it is, family member, non-family member, stranger, somebody they know, it doesn't matter. They have heavy resentments at them. And then it also comes up in the sex inventory where they're confused about what happened. And a lot of times uh, in the fourth column, when we uh, get to the resentment parts, a lot of times a lot of sponsors and some, sometimes the literature talks about like, well, what was our part? Well, what was our part? Well, guess what the role and the part that these guys that I sponsor, these men that I sponsor that were assaulted as kids, their part was nothing. And I try to point that out to them. I'm like, listen, brother, you were eight years old. You were a victim in this situation, or you were 12 years old and you were a victim in this situation. Your part is nothing. You have no part. You have no responsibility in this. So I don't want you to put this on your heart or your soul or carry this with you and, and, and just you know, there's just so many, so many complicated parts, but that seems to be a pretty common theme with a bunch of the guys that I sponsor, not all of them. And I won't put a percentage on them, but I'd say, you know, just there's been a bunch of them and I've had to deal with them, deal with that issue with those guys. And, and there is a way to get sober and, and, and heal from that kind of stuff. Has the desire to drink or use again, return since you've been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? 
I wouldn't say that the desire has ever. I can't say that it hadn't crossed my mind, and I think they're two different things, you know, in, at least in my mind. It was, it was interesting to me, early sobriety. Um, so if you remember my sobriety dates, April 8th, uh, the very first Cinco de Mayo. Um, I was in Scottsdale still, and I remember walking through Old Town, and I remember <laughs> glancing over. It, it was it was some, uh, I think it was Don and Charlie's. It was a Mexican place. Cinco de Mayo, you know, people are out having fun. And I looked over, and I saw this huge schooner of margarita. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it, and I went, oh, that is just such a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And, like, kept walking, and... I'm glad you touched on that. You know, I never thought, and I think I mentioned this before, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I never thought I'd golf again. I never thought I'd I'd be able to fly again. I never thought I'd be able to take a road trip because these are all places that my behavior in those days, you know, I drank and I drank a ton. Like I used to, I used to tell people I had airport anxiety. It's a lie. Okay. I wanted to get there two hours early so I could have six at the bar before I got on the plane. Then I could have four on the plane, and then I could have three or four more when I got off the plane before I got to wherever I was going, and we could really get our party on. So the reality is, uh, you know, I I just never think I could go to those places again. Now, you know, fast forward to, you know, 1,444 days into this beautiful journey, um, and with my role with my companies, uh, I I do. I take customers who do not have our disease out to dinner, out to happy hour, out to it just for me, it's kind of like black licorice. I don't like or eggplant is my favorite thing because I cannot. I'm a chef. I cannot stand eggplant. So here's the deal. I don't like eggplant, but I can prepare eggplant and give it to you. Okay, alcohol is the same way for me. I don't like it. I have an allergy to it. Um, but it doesn't mean I can't be around you having it. I mean, if you know a friend who's got diabetes, it doesn't mean that you don't have dessert in front of them, you know. Um, I really love it when my friends are comfortable enough around me for it not to be a thing, you know, because for me, I just don't care about it. I'm beyond, you know, as of today, I'm beyond, you know, like it just doesn't matter to me. I feel that. I hear that. I think there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of people that hear this podcast that are um, in dating situations where you are on the dating apps or you're meeting people from church or work and you're in this dating situation and you're the sober guy or you're the sober girl and you're walking down the first few steps of this potential relationship with this new person. And at some point it's going to come up. Do you drink or not drink? And a lot of times they'll be like, well, why do you not drink? And you've got to be uh, in a position where you're just honest with them and be like, yo, I'm sober, man. I just don't drink anymore, and, and that's what it is. I just uh, I just can't do it. And, and, and then my wife and I had to cross that bridge when we started dating. And she's my wife now, but when we were boyfriend-girlfriend early on in our relationship, uh, she's like, so can I drink around you or can I not drink around you or what are we doing here? And I was like, what I told her, I was like, girl, I'm the alcoholic. I'm the one that can't drink. What happened to me is I so frightfully abused that privilege 
of drinking alcohol. It's not a right. It's a privilege. And I so frightfully abuse the privilege to drink alcohol that I am no longer allowed to indulge. (laughs) (laughs) I, I can't handle it. You know, you do you. You stay in your lane. You want a margarita? Fine. You want a beer? That's fine. You want a wine? That's fine. You can drink on these dates, but I'm not going to be doing it. This really helped me in year one. I listened every single night when I was going to sleep. I listened every single night for an entire year. I put on some kind of speaker tape. Whether it was Earl Hightower, Earl H, he, he uses his last name, but Earl H, Clancy, Bob D, Chuck C, and I'll tell you my favorite one, Joe and Charlie have this 10-hour big book deal, and I guarantee you, no kidding, I probably listened to it in its entirety 10 times in my first year of sobriety. Not all at one time, but that's how I fell asleep. And I I was going to mention to you, part of the challenge with me, or at least what I perceived my challenge to be um, when I wasn't sober was, okay, how do I get this mind to shut down at night? Like, how do I close it? And so, I mean, I would drink and I would drink and I would drink. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, it just didn't work anymore, you know? And then even, you know, when I had the Ambien, I just, I couldn't shut it down. But I tried to drink or drug my way to go to sleep. And now I just use it to my advantage. I read, I read a lot in cookbooks. I read a lot about cooking on the internet. I just, I will just go until all of a sudden I go, I'm tired and it's okay. I don't, I don't stress about I need to have 8.25 hours to sleep or I'm not right. No, you know what? My body will let me sleep as long as it needs to sleep and then it'll get up. And I just happen to be a a cat that doesn't need a lot of sleep. That's fantastic. I appreciate you shining that light on new behavior as far as like going to sleep and making healthy decisions about your bedtime and trying to make healthy decisions about what you put in your body food wise and who you hang out with. And it's just all good information because it's all new behavior for us. We don't really know how to uh, put ourselves to bed at an appropriate and responsible hour because we're too busy ripping and running and drinking and drugging and stealing and cheating and lying. We're not trying to go to bed at 1030. Like we're scheming, we're scheming usually at 1030, you know, we're not trying to go to bed. So when you get served, you have to learn all these new life skills. And what that, I think you could term a lot of these skills that we acquire in sobriety. I think you call them adult life skills or adult tools, but a lot of us don't have possession of those when we get here. Uh, And for me, I had to learn them through monkey see, monkey do. I would watch people that wanted what I, that had what I wanted. And I would watch them and I'd be like, huh. And they might say in a meeting, well, I go to bed at 9.30 and I get up at 6.30 and I pray and meditate before I take my kids to school or before I go to work. And I'm like, well, I ain't never done that, dude. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. 9.30, 10.30. But then I would watch them and month after month and year after year, they appeared to be happy and stable. And I was like, yo, that looks good, dude. That looks real good, happy and stable, nice. He's married. He's got a kid. He's got a job. They take vacations. <laughs> I was like, I maybe should try to monkey see, monkey do, emulate what he does instead of staying up till 1.30 every night and getting up and trying to go to work the next day and just being super tired and super draggy in the morning. 
And so that's where I learned a lot of my life school skills is here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober, and how have you coped with it? That's a fascinating and great question. Really, only one time. I don't know if it was evil forces coming after me, but it was probably about probably about six or eight months ago. I found myself in a storm inside of my body. Just, I mean, it just it all of a sudden it seemed like everything what I perceived was going wrong. It was like boom, 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 boom. I was just getting hit from all sides with all kinds of crazy stuff. And of course, I was talking with my sponsor, and you know uh, that that is great because that will defuse um, for the meantime, you know, of what's going on, and you'll continue to work on it. And that's really that's one of the best things about good sponsorship is you know you learn these tools, and I'll talk about the tools in a minute. But I got to like the seventh day of. And it, it had gotten to the point where it was really, really um, bothering me. Like, just too, just everything was too much, right? That anxiety, you know? And I remember I was sitting at my kitchen table. I had my laptop up. I was going. I'm doing my work. And I just reached over, and I just shut the laptop and I call, it was like being in Vegas on the craps table. I'm like off on everything. And I got up, I got my AirPods, I walked outside, I sat on my patio, I put my AirPods in, I put a little Harry Connick Jr. in, and I said, I'm going to sit here for an hour. And I literally just stopped my life for an hour. And of course, it's inconvenient. I could make up all the excuses why I shouldn't do that. But I knew that I was at DEFCON 5. Like, let's do, i got to do. I came out of that hour, and I walked back inside. The very first phone call is a good news thing from the title company. I got another call from my other CEO. Good news. And I looked around going, well, maybe I should just sit on my back porch for an hour all the time. You know, early on in sobriety, they, I heard people talking about this toolbox, you know, and I'm like, I'm looking under my chair, and I'm like, well, okay, I'm 12 days sober. When do I get this toolbox? I had to relearn how to live life because I was wired differently than other people. And my friend, he said, do you know what the hula hoop theory is? And I'm looking at him like, dude, no. He goes, okay, Mike, put an imaginary hula hoop around you. And I was like okay, it's there. He goes, anything on the interior circumference of that hula hoop, you can control. Anything on the exterior, you cannot. And it, I mean, it was a Forrest Gump moment for me. <laughs> I'm sitting there like going, well, I'll be darned. To a simpleton like me, that was genius right there. I was in another meeting. It was Preston Group again. And he was the second guy to share and it was, I think the topic was, you know, have you heard anything or something? I don't, I don't even remember what the topic was. This dude laid it out. He goes, well, my sponsor mentioned to me, you know, have you prayed about it as much as you've talked about it? 
And I mean, the whole room, whoever was, whoever was chairing the meeting goes, well, I think our meeting's done. And that was, was me. Just, that was me chairing that, you? that was me, dude. <laughs> that was me. That was me chairing that meeting. That dude that dropped dude that. the glass? Yeah, I was there, dude. <laughs> oh, my God. He said, have you prayed about it as much as you've talked about it? His sponsor told him that. I was like, yo, we could close the meeting, yeah, dude. that's exactly what you said. I couldn't remember if that was you chairing that. That was me. I was at that meeting. Well, obviously, it has stuck. Um, that's one of those, you know, just the... The reprogramming or new design of how to act and how to, you know, how to present myself. My life has gotten unbelievably easier. You were just mentioning the, the kit of spiritual tools that are laid at our feet. And it talks about it in the literature. And I have acquired a massive uh, tool chest of spiritually based tool that I use to, to work my way through life today. And it's, it's just a blessing to be able to do that. And the reason that I've had to gain all these things in sobriety is because in hindsight, like I said, I learned everything in hindsight. When I look back over my life, I was drinking and drugging pretty dang heavy from the age of 13 to 30. And most human beings on this planet between the ages of 13 and 30 acquire a lot of life skills. Uh, how to go to job, how to get a girlfriend, how to pay your rent, how to pay your taxes, how to be a good guy, how to go to church if you want to do that, how to do a lot of things, how to pay your bills, how to do car insurance, how to balance your checkbook. There's so many skills that a lot of people uh, acquire between ages 13 and 30. I was not super interested in acquiring any of those skills. I was more interested in acquiring uh, party party skills, you know, party tricks and being able to drink and drug on a daily basis and continue to do what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, where I wanted to do it, with the people I wanted to do it with at the time I wanted to do it. I wanted to live life on my terms. Mm -hmm. I wanted to live life on my terms. I wanted to dictate to life and not learn how to let life just happen and then figure out a way that I would be able to live in that world where I can be comfortable in my own skin almost all the time. So I had to acquire so many skills here as an adult. And it's semi-embarrassing to have to grow up in public, you know? It's semi-embarrassing to come into here and try to figure out how to date in your 30s. 50s. Yeah, or, or yeah. <laughs> I'm struggling right yes, now. Yes, me too. Or to figure out how do I have my how do I have my first child in my 40s. Right. Like a lot of people get that done in their 20s. No, dude, I was not, God did not see me as a good candidate to be a father in my 20s. So he's like, absolutely not. 30s like, no, he's still drinking and drug. We got to get this kid sober. Hold on now. And then we got me sober. And then he gave me my wife. And then we got pregnant. And then we had a kid and I was in my 40s. So there's a lot of things that uh, you could call me delayed in my maturity. <laughs> but thank God for the fellowship being there and being in the position where it could be, support me and teach me. Let's talk a little bit about the amends process in Alcoholics Anonymous. Can you tell us about an amends that you have made? I don't know about your sponsor, but mine said, whatever you do, whatever one you think is the hardest, don't wait until last. So I'm raising my hand right now because, you know, I'm an overachiever. So, of course, the one that I think is so horrible I just, I just can't get to it. You know, it's never convenient, whatever. So finally, it was one of my best friends in high school. We had had one of my infamous parties at his parents' house after I'd been kicked out of my house. I had gone into his parents' closet, and I stole a ring. 
a gold ring. There is not one other human being on the entire planet that ever knew ever knew this at all, right? Until I, after I got sober, when I told my sponsor, and I just dreaded it. And I'm I'm still great friends with his parents. They're like a second set of parents for me. And finally, um, I was parked at a grocery store one night, probably about a year and a half, almost two years sober. And it's the last one, but I was at a grocery store in their neighborhood, and I just, I just felt it inside. It's like mm-hmm. it came from above. It's just like God going, okay, now's the time. And so I said, okay. So I picked up the phone, and I called my buddy's dad, and uh, I said, hey, blank, you know, I'm in your neighborhood. Can I come by and see, you know, you and blank, his wife? And uh, he said, sure. I uh, would love to. So I go to their house. Hey, you know, hey, hey, Mike, how are you here? You want a Coke? You want to, you know. They're in their 70s now and you're in your 50s, right? Right, right. So they're sitting there and I'm, oh. I, I mean. It's, I can only imagine. Yeah, I, Do you feel the heat coming yeah, up? The, again? the heat is through the top of that. The tears are already coming. Oh, my and God. Not one word has come out of my mouth. Really? So they're just staring is, at you? This is just the hardest thing. And I just know my life is over, you know, to be dramatic about it. Like, uh, that's it. Like, and I'm loving the story. <laughs> I, f- I finally said it. It came out of my mouth. Tell me what you said. I said, Mr. and Mrs. Blank. And they know I'm sober now. And I said, you know, on this journey of sobriety, I need to make things right from the wreckage of my past. And I need to clean some things up. This is really hard for me to do. But I need to tell you that in 1979, while y'all were out of town, I went into your closet and I stole a gold ring. And I've got money in my pocket. If you'll just tell me what you think is... I'd like to make a financial amends for that, and I just want to make it right. And I mean, just tears. I just, I'm an emotional guy to begin with, and I just, just the tears have been flowing. And his mom was sitting there so elegantly, and she looks at me, and she's holding my buddy's dad's hand, and she said the most beautiful thing, Mike, the fact that you have carried this around for as long as you have, and you've come here to tell us about it is enough, and we love you. I could not believe the grace that was shown to me. So about five months later, she passed away from cancer. So I went to the services, and being close with the family, I went back to the family's house. My buddy's dad hollered at me. He goes, Mike, come here. And so I walked back into the bedroom with him, And he opened a dresser, and he held out. He held out a set of sobriety coins that went to year 38, and they were her dad's. And I never knew, and my buddy never told me his mom had a dad that was in the program. My buddy's dad said, would you like these? And I said, yes. And they're in my closet at home. The thing about our program, at least what I have found, there is more grace in this world 
if you just address it honestly and you give everybody the same value, everybody's just as important as everybody else, and it does not matter. Everybody is a beautiful human being. I have had more beautiful moments in the last 1,444 days of my life than I had in the first 54 years. Okay, so I wanted to talk to you about the 10th step, and I want to read that real quick before I kick it back over to you. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted that. I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to start laughing, because my very first 10th step sadly needed to be with one of my old sponsors. <laughs> I needed, I can't, you know, it was something so tragic, I can't remember what it is, right? But I, I needed some answer on something. I was here, it was probably April when I got here in 19, you know. I had my new sponsor here, but I couldn't get him on the phone. And of course, whatever it was, was burning down the world. And I had, so I said, I know what I'll do. I'm going to call Bob. So I, I got on the phone and I called Bob. And as I started the call, now, mind you, I'm, I'm a year sober. I haven't needed to do a 10th step yet, right? Mm -hmm. So as I start the call, I'm back in salesman mic mode, and I'm selling, baby. I mean, I'm strategizing. I'm using the wording, and I'm identifying it. While it's coming out of my mouth on the phone, I'm trying to get an answer on something that goes in my way, and I'm sitting here going, Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to tell him I just lied to him. And so it's, it's one, I love him. Okay. And he is a man that taught me so much out of the big book. So I keep him on the phone as long as I can, because I know the end of the call, I have to make a 10 step. I finally just went, you know, what, Bob, I'm tried to manipulate and lie to you at the beginning of this call to set it up so I would get the outcome that I wanted. And I apologize. Is there anything I can do to make this right? While it hurt so bad at the beginning, it taught me, one, it taught me my progress of becoming a human being. But two, it taught me that I never want to feel like that again so i have since then and i've had to do some tents since then obviously i am so careful with my words like i said i have had missteps and i will i'll have them again i just had one recently with somebody that that i really care about a lot and you know i popped off and according to her it was nothing she didn't think anything about it i don't know if that's true or not but i just said look here's I was condescending and sarcastic, and I need to make this right. And she's not in our fellowship, but she's aware of our fellowship. Um, and it was, again, it's just that feel, it's that heat that goes to the top of your head, and you're just like, I'm in trouble. Now, you've heard a lot of my story today, so I'm not in trouble like I used to be in trouble. Yeah, there's different degrees. <laughs> right. You know, needing to make things right on being sarcastic mm -hmm. is very different than other things. Well, you're making refinements. You're making fine-tuned adjustments <laughs> right. now versus big, huge earthquake-style changes in your life. Right. I remember in early sobriety, very similar to what you were just talking about, I was, uh, my wife and I were in bed, and we were going getting ready to go to sleep, 
And in early sobriety, I used to talk a lot. Like I talked a lot more than I talk now. Like I talked a lot, a lot. <laughs> and uh, I thought that I thought two things. I thought that um, when I talked all the time, I thought that I was funny and I thought that I was charming and I thought that I was endearing. And that might have been true to some level. But apparently the reason I'm telling you this story is one night I was in bed with my wife. We're getting ready to go to sleep and we're talking. And I said something that I would have scored or said or told you that was funny. <laughs> that was very, very funny what I just said. And I kind of rolled over and looked at my wife and she gave me a look. And I will describe this look as the stink eye. She put the stink eye on me. And I was like, oh, that did not land how I thought that was going to land. I intended no ill will. I intended no malice. I intended comedy. And I intended levity, but it did not land like that. So I kind of rolled over, and I'm still in early sobriety. And we're still early in our marriage. And I start thinking, she's quiet now. She's not talking to me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Everything has gone silent. Everything has gone silent. And I started to think about the 10th step. And I started thinking about continue to take personal inventory. And when I am wrong, promptly admitted it. And I started to think about that word promptly. (laughs) I started to think about that word promptly. And I said to myself, Mike, what do promptly mean? (laughs) What do promptly mean? And so I was like, does that mean like tomorrow? Or does that mean like never? (laughs) Or does that mean next week? Or does that mean now? Is that on my headstone? Yeah, dude. (laughs) What do promptly mean? And so I kind of like look back over my shoulder and she's like not feeling me. And I'm like, golly, I was like, I'm going to have to do it, dude. I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to do a 10 step on my wife right now, right here in bed. As I rolled her, I was like, listen, baby girl, honey, I love you. First of all, let me just say I love you. And I regret my behavior and I regret what I said. And I realized that that was wrong and that was inappropriate and it hurt you. And I don't want to hurt you because I value you more than anything. You're my best friend. I love you. I'm so sorry. I want to let you know that I um, understand what I said was um, incorrect and hurtful to you. And I regret that. And I don't want to do that again because you mean everything to me. So please let me know what I can do to make it right. And just know that I will try not to be that guy anymore. I just thought I was being funny, but apparently it was not funny. And she just looked at me and she's like, I love you. I forgive you. That was mean what you said. I said, okay, well, I'll try not to do that anymore. The reason I'm telling you that story is I talk a lot less now than I used to. And I use what I call an economy of words. And I used to not have a filter between my mouth and my brain. I did. There was no brake pedal. There was nobody in quality control. There was nobody thinking about anything that I, if I thought it, I was going to say. Because like I told you, I thought I was funny and I thought I was quick. And now I have a little bit of a filter and a pretty good-sized clutch in there between my mouth and my brain. I start to think things a lot before I say them now. I really really evaluate what I'm getting ready to say, and I think, okay, Mike, you're getting ready to say this. Does this need to be said? Does it need to be said right now? Does it need to be said by you? And is it kind? That's smart. And that really, really helps me be in a position where I don't step on the toes of my fellows as much, which means they don't retaliate against me as much. And it also means that I don't have to like take the lash out or the whip out on myself and say things to myself like, Mike, why did you say that? That was very, you caused a very bad situation there. You made a bad situation worse. 
have a lot more love in my heart and grace towards myself and others. And I'm not quick to anger and I'm not quick to shoot my mouth off. And I'm more inclined now to see things if they don't go my way as God's will. And if accidents happen, I can extend a ton of grace now. And I don't have to yell at anybody and I don't have to be embarrassed for myself or embarrassed for them. And the where I see it showing up the most in my life is, is as a father. Because I have a 12-year-old son, and I talk about him all the time on here. And 12-year-old sons are not perfect. They don't do everything perfectly. Because they're still learning about themselves, and they're still learning about life. And so what I have been able to do is extend my son a ton of grace and a ton of patience. And I don't scream at my son. I don't yell at him for mistakes. I don't tell him that he's dumb. I don't tell him he's embarrassing me. I don't do any of those things. I try to just be the best father that I can be because I think about my higher power and I think my higher power kind of like is my dad. He loves me and cares about me and is patient with me. So I try to extend the same type of behavior in the ways of looking at the world towards my son. So I really like being a dad. Amen. Yeah, and I really like the 10th step. Let's go on to talk about why is going to meetings important? I know that the days or the nights that I am fighting going to a meeting, like, look, I'm tired. I've I've got three jobs right now, plus I'm building this. I just, you know what? I've had enough. I need some mic time. I need to, when I start making those excuses, I know that those are the nights I need to go. Because that's more than likely my disease starting to, you know, try to ease its way back into my life and be Rico Suave, you know, to get me back to that point. And every single time I have gone to any meeting when I have fought it, I've gotten like this one nugget. Totally. And, you know, you just sit there and now... You know, my joke is, you know, when God's having a slow day, he just looks over at St. Peter and he just says, let's go McCoy. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he gives me a 31-year-old son out of nowhere one day. You know, I mean, he, you know, he does this stuff and the meetings are the same way. And I'll just look up and I'll wink and I'll smile and I'll go, thank you. I know. Do you have a certain number or quantity of meetings that you're trying to hit per week? Oh, what a a great question. Amen. At four years. At four years, what is that? I do. I know if I don't catch four meetings a week, I start getting squirrely. And the beautiful part, and we've talked about this a little bit tonight, um, the beautiful part of this program and where I've gotten settled in is... I can call my own crap. Now, I still need some help. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I think most of the time you can call your own crap. <laughs> right. But every once in a while, you get the unrequested assistance of friends and family and sponsor. Uh, right. Hey, Mike, you, want to, you might want to take a look at this. Yeah. You're like, oh. Right. <laughs> um, I just, you know, four meetings is good. That That's my baseline, okay? But now, I'm a guy... And this is my take and my opinion on it. It doesn't mean it's factual or anybody else, but I have been very blessed since I got here that I go to a lot of different groups. 
just because I'm a social guy, you know, I mean, you know, and, and, and now I know that my family is worldwide and I can just walk in and feel at home, which is really mind boggling for me. It's like, you mean I can go to Colorado Springs and I can walk into a building with the triangle and the circle that I was afraid of and I'm going to love everybody and I do it. And it's like, holy crap, this is unbelievable. Well, anyway, so I have gone to all these meetings and still continue to go to a lot of them here. What I've found is each meeting has a different personality. Totally. And in my opinion, being able to call my own stuff, like if I need a very structured meeting, I go to one place. If I need a sharing meeting, I go to one place. If I need to keep my mouth shut completely, I go to another place. Um, and then I have, so like, I can tell you like Monday, Monday nights, Friday nights, I catch shivering denizens Wednesday night. I like the Frisco men's group. I catch my home group, pressing group, a couple of, a couple of nooners, you know, here and there spread out. Um, I like to venture over to, uh, North star. Um, that's where my grand sponsor and my great grand sponsor go. Um, I do a little bit of Aquarius from time to time. I've, I catch some Chicago groups and PPG. So you can see, like, I am a guy that didn't want to walk in the door <laughs> day one. And now at 1444, it's like, I love you all. Yeah, it's like a, you're a big consumer. You're a big consumer of AA now. And, and it's good for everybody else. I think you know my personality a little bit more now and how much I talk. It's probably a good thing that I spread myself around. <laughs> go to a bunch of different meetings. You're like, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go over there. A lot of people don't do that. And I mean, I'm right. just like you. I go to a lot of different meetings. There's a lot of cats, and I know, and I'm not going to pass judgments or say too much about it, but they go to a group, and they sit in a chair and they say the same thing on every topic that comes around they've got a set spiel for the honesty meetings they've got a set spiel for the 11 step meetings and i have learned a lot from those guys i might not necessarily agree with that deal because i'm like you i'm social i want to go around to a bunch of different groups and i usually want to sit in a bunch of different chairs um, and hear a bunch of different stories but you know different strokes are different folks and i realize it's not about 100% about me. It's not the mic show anymore. I'm just part of it. Right. It's part of the deal. So I've learned to practice acceptance on that stuff. I want to talk about the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to read mm. the promises real quick. Yeah. And then after I read the promises, I want you to give me an example of one of the promises coming true. Here we go. The promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we are going to be amazed before we are halfway through. And the halfway through they're talking about is halfway through the ninth step. So if you work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, in order, these promises come true when you're halfway through the ninth step. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. I tie that on 
with no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Because here, I can, it's this right here in the promises is telling me, hey, Mike, do you know that this stuff that you think is extreme baggage can actually help somebody else? Okay, if you don't regret it, and you've fixed it, and you can turn it into a positive, and all of a sudden, I'm looking at this stuff going, well, wait a minute. Okay, giddy up, let's do this. Um, so, the promise is, and if you remember the story about the throat punching, <laughs> you know, of day one, when I read that stuff, I'm like, and I sat there, okay, dude, <laughs> the economic security, I'm like, you're out of your mind. Like, I, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to have a car in another week. You know, I mean, all of this stuff I read on day one, I'm just like, this is just poppycock. Like, it's not possible. And I can sit here today, 100% honesty, and I tell you, every single one of these has come true. Now, sometimes... I have to go back and revisit them because they come in and out um, because of things that I do that I need to correct from time to time. But every single one of these, um, you know, when the we will comprehend the word peace and seren- or serenity and we will know the word peace. Um, that goes back to that night in the vacant house in Wichita when I just sat around and all of a sudden that maximum amount of oxygen was coming in my mouth and I just looked around and it, that was the moment at about six months sober that I just found the peace and serenity that you all were telling me about that I didn't ever believe I would ever have. Um, so I'm very grateful for this. Let's talk about the literature for a minute. Let's switch gears and talk about the literature. Do you have a favorite part of the big book or any recovery-based literature that you want to share with us? It was said in a meeting, either God is everything or God is nothing. I, through my due diligence, have chosen everything. Okay, God is everything. And that was important for me to get into the third step. You know, unless I believe in a higher power. I'm. I got nothing to turn all this. I've got nobody to turn all this stuff over to. So God is either everything or nothing. So I choose everything. Then I run all the way back to page four seventeen. Four seventeen is probably the page that I live on, and I have to to keep my sanity because this mind of mine, this brain of mine, man, it can go into hyperdrive and it can make stuff up and it can go from left to right and it can, you know, um, but you know, 417 acceptance, the more, the more times I read that in a week, the more it's true. And the more it just calms me, like it's almost like 417 allows me to be aware of all of this stuff in our world that's happening, but it also tells me, one, God's in charge, but two, I don't have to have an emotional reaction to everything. Or an opinion to everything, or, yeah. and tell everybody about it. Right, it, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I said some, somebody, uh, somebody said something to me, they were asking me about something political, this was probably a year ago, or two years ago, and they asked me something, and I literally looked them square in the eye, and I said, it's my vote. You can't have it. 
and it's none of your business. Okay. And they looked at me, and I'm like, next? Wow. But go back to 417 with me. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it's because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolute nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. This is the part that gets me right here. This is it. Unless I can accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. Then it closes with, I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. And what that speaks to me is, okay, if, if the guy cutting me off on the road is bothering me, it's not his action that's bothering me. It's something else in me. It might be some other part of my day. It might be someone who's on my mind that I think has wronged me. It's not the guy cutting in front of me because he doesn't know what he's doing. But when I start finding myself getting out of sorts, I have, again, it's that call my own stuff. I have to start looking around going, why is this making me mad? Because before I develop a resentment, why don't I try and get to the root of it and figure it out and resolve it. Totally. I remember when I discovered that in early sobriety, I was like, that's a revolutionary way to view life. I don't currently view life that way because I've only got a couple years sober, but I do hear people talking about page 417 in here a lot. And I have read page 417. And I can't say I necessarily live like that because those are some pretty aspirational words. And that's a pretty gnarly paragraph, but I'd like to get there. And so what I did is little by slow, I trended towards having a revolution in the way that I viewed myself, that I viewed you, and that I viewed God. And once I had that revolutionary transformation via a spiritual experience that I received in Alcoholics Anonymous by working the 12 Steps in Order, with a sponsor, I received that revolutionary new way to view you, me, and God. And that allowed me to be comfortable in my own skin almost all the time. And I talk about that a lot in meetings, that my perspective was changed. Little by slow, meeting after meeting, week after week, month after month, year after year of sobriety, my view of the world changed and I just got more and more comfortable not drinking and not drugging and just trying to just revolutionarily move to a new place in the world. And I got there partially through acceptance that everything was right on time. I remember my sponsor told me one time I was explaining some problems or some perceived problems that I had. And he goes, you know, Mike, everything's right on time. Everything's happening right on time. You're getting this information about your job promotion or potential job promotion right on time. It's not early, and it's not late. It's right on time. It's on God's time, not your time, but it's right on God's time. Everything as it should be right now. And that really helped me to uh, to respect him, you know, and believe him. Because it always worked out, you know. It's always worked out for me. It's always worked out for me. It's just been really profound. What is the value of service work in the program, and what ways are you giving back to help the newcomer? When I 
get to start thinking up a menu for Maggie's House or Phoenix House, Texas or Turtle Creek Recovery or whoever it might be, I get to start thinking about the people there. And that takes me out of self. And then I get to start thinking about, okay, well, what's the ratio of men to women? Okay, is it all women? Okay, well, maybe I don't want to go with the dino beef ribs. You know, maybe I want to go with a beautiful baby spinach salad with a raspberry vinaigrette. You can see when I let my mind go, and of course it's, in, it's tied to service around creation of food and making the food, I let my brain exercise itself and just go. I reached out to Lisa and I said, hey, Lisa, you know, can I, you know, can I cook for the girls at Maggie's house? She goes, yeah, let me put you in touch with blah, blah. So she puts me in touch with somebody. Oh, that would be great. How about Sunday night? And I said, oh, okay, that'd be great. Well, what started out then has now become just a solid passion for every Sunday for me. I put so much thought into it and prep work and time. And I am now 60 weeks straight every Sunday. Sunday is my favorite day of the week. Wow. Because... I, I don't invite people over. It's my day. It's my time. I'm in the kitchen. I crank my music. I am such a music freak because um, I can go from Vivalde to Big Smo to over to Harry Connick to Eminem. To, I mean, I'm a big classical music geek, and there's not a lot of people that would want to stand there on a Sunday and you know listen to the beautiful blue Danab. you know. <laughs> That's awesome. That is so good. I just got a vision of you cooking in these kitchens on Sunday, just going nuts. You'll have to come up sometime. Is there anything else you want to say about Maggie's house? Um, Stephanie Crawford was on here, and she oh, works there. Great. She's oh. so good. She's so good. <laughs> Love her so much. It's really neat, especially because because I go so far back with Lisa that I'm very comfortable asking her questions that maybe somebody else wouldn't. And so I've relied on her quite a bit and gotten quite a bit for Chef to the Shelters just from asking her some questions. But here's here's the neat thing. One, I don't care how anybody gets sober. I just hope they find the peace and serenity that I've been able to find through the four walls of Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, uh, my higher power that I call God. But I have a very special place in my heart for not only a place like, you know, Maggie's house is a social detox, okay? It does not cost a penny for anyone to go there. I yeah, mean, it's privately funded. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, and, and again, there are people with di in different demographics in our society that can go to some places, not go to some other places, whatever. You've got a place like Maggie's house or the Dallas 24-hour club, or Turtle Creek Recovery, you know, these are the places that I just fall in love with. These are the places that I think are catching some some of the people that, you know, may otherwise fall. I have to tell you the funny story of how, how the very first meal ever took place at the Dallas 24-Hour Club. That's where it all started. They are like my genesis, right? It's 2019. Now I've got some flow coming in because I, you know, got my job and I want to give back. So I don't know this cat named Tim Grigsby. He's their chief operating officer. So somebody tells me his name 
and says, oh, you need to talk to him. He's a great guy, blah, blah. So here I am on the phone. And it's probably July and I'm calling about Thanksgiving. So I'm like, uh, yeah, Tim, uh, this is Mike McCoy. Um, you don't you don't know me. I just moved back here. And so I cook. And I was wondering, like on Thanksgiving, would it be okay if I came down there to cook for the residents? Here's Tim. Like, it's a flatline nuclear holocaust. <laughs> the yeah. world explodes. You know, somebody cuts off his leg. I mean, he just is a cool cat, right? So here's Tim on the other end of the phone. He goes, um, Mike, that is so nice of you. Um, the city of Dallas really comes out strong on Thanksgiving, and we want to thank you very much, but, you know, Thanksgiving, we're good. And so Tim's thinking the call's over, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, well, what about Wednesday? And there's this 10-second pause, and this guy goes, what Wednesday? I go, well, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Who feeds the residents on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving? Tim's like, um... Yeah, you can. That's how this whole thing. Now we're up to 27 shelters, sober wow. living shelters, transition homes, sober living homes, because Tim gave a guy he didn't know a chance. And a salesman on the other end of the phone, which was you, <laughs> right. acted like you didn't hear him when he tried to give you the brushback pitch talking about, we're good, Thursday, city right. boss. You're like... Bro, that's not what I wanted to hear you say. How about the Wednesday before Thanksgiving? What about Wednesday? Um, I will share one thing, and and this was really good for me. Um, I mentioned him earlier, uh, Reno John. He's uh, he's a speaker that I've probably heard probably fifteen times, and he when he talks every now and then he talks about the distorted perception of reality of alcoholics. I had heard that. A few times, and then all of a sudden, it took on a new meaning to me. Um, and this is recent. This is within probably the last three weeks that I came to this. I was sitting one night, and I went, okay, wait. So if I drank because I was upset or because I was happy or because I was whatever, right? I was always drinking, okay? It really didn't matter why. So I had a distorted perception of reality, and totally. From what you said earlier, yes, you had a totally <laughs> distorted perception of reality at the end of your drinking. I may have had a distorted perception of the universe, but yeah. all of a sudden, it was this thought came in and I went, holy crap. For 40 years that I drank, have I ever really felt real happiness? Because... If I was drinking and I had a distorted perception of reality, and so then I backed it up to the last 1444 days of my life, and I have enjoyed true happiness. I have the peace and serenity, and I know it's real. My outlook on life has changed, and the calmness even though people argue that I'm not calm, I'm kind of a spaz, but the calmness that I have inside of my body today is something that I tried to get through every possible means, and I didn't get it until I just stopped. Thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. It's so awesome. That is so good. You've done a lot of work in the first four years of your sobriety. I can't imagine. I'm excited where you're going to be at 10 years. I don't sleep. Yeah, by the time... (laughs) 
I can't imagine how much you're going to have to say when you're 10 years sober. I'm no. just going to be like, wow. No, Gary will speak for me. I'll have a piece of tape over my Yeah, dog. yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I love Gary. He's the best. Yeah. Well, this has been profound. This has been exciting. This has been informative. And if you are still listening to this podcast, <laughs> I want to congratulate you. You're going to get a, I'll mail you. Send me your address and I will mail you a gold medal or some kind of award. You get or, a free rack of ribs. Yeah, a certificate of completion. I don't know what we're going to do for you, but I am super proud of you for out for the people that are out there listening to this marathon session. We are well, well into the multiple multiple hours and that's that's okay that's fine i had the energy and the in the uh, gumption to do it and he had the energy and gumption to do it so we hope this has been a blessing to you we love you we care about you and we respect you as listeners and i want to remind you guys that you can reach out to me at mike at sobershares.com you want to give your email one more time that'd be great mike at chef to the shelters.org or you can ring me at 602-390-3479. That's fantastic. I so appreciate that. I'm going to read something from page 164 of the big book. It's called A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. So see to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May May God God bless bless you and keep you until then.